All right. Welcome to episode six. 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 I uh, see what I did there. Of uh, We Have Such Films to Show You, the podcast where Josh and Yakov talk about the Hellraiser films that they made, too many of them. And, uh, that makes it sound like we made them. We did yeah. not make no, these did, movies. We, I, I would like to make that very clear. We, 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 we disclaim any, any culpability whatsoever uh, for the movie's existence. Their uh, continued uh, cultural highlighting, on the other hand, uh, <laughs> we seem to be, for some reason, willing to be totally complicit in. Uh, I'm Josh Millard. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, uh, Yakov Grinberg. Hey. 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 And, uh, and yeah, so we're talking about Hellraiser 6, uh, or as it's known officially, Hellraiser colon Hellseeker. Uh, it's literally called colon Hellseeker. It's, it, <laughs> it's a very, very specific sort of horror film. It takes place entirely in the upper colon. It's, 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 um, it's a kind of, uh, kind of microcosmic prequel to the human centipede. <laughs> a little bit of um, colon humor oh, there. A little, a little colon here. <laughs> Hang on, this is something I wanted to do. So I've been listening to some other podcasts, and they do this occasionally before the podcast instead of right after the end, so I'm going to do it now. Um, we have a Facebook page, so you should go check that out. Um, it's just called We Have Such Films to Show You, and then there's a Tumblr as well. Um, so both of these things are ways that you could follow us um, outside of your podcast player, whatever it is you're using to play podcasts. And you can also uh, go to, to iTunes and uh, rate and review the show. Uh, that, yes. Which uh, both things are helpful for us for raising the profile from this so we can eventually scrape our way to the Z list. And, uh, and then after that, we'll, we'll start aiming for ordinarily smaller letters in the alphabet. But... Uh, this is our get poor to steady pace plan. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> so this movie, this movie, uh, it was not very good. No, you, you remember how last episode I, I mentioned this, and then a number of your reviews mentioned this, that Hellraiser Inferno, which was the previous movie, it would have been a lot better if it was considerably less coherent and if the main character had no trace of personality. Remember me making that point repeatedly? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Well, it, it came true. Yeah, they really, they really I, refined the formula on this one. They, yeah, I just... It's, it's really strange that just, I mean, compared to the previous movie, how they just took out anything about it that was redeeming. Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to say there are things that I think this movie did a bit better than the other movie, but not like this is a good movie better. Just uh, <laughs> some of the things that I thought, like things we criticized in, in the previous film uh, were among other things, there were a huge number of, of, of red herrings. Chekhov's gov, yep. gl- gun kept repeatedly not going off. It turned out later that it wasn't even a gun. It was actually just a lumpy <laughs> piece of chocolate, but then someone ate it, but then they forgot to show the, the part where they ate it, and later they burped, but the burp smelled like bacon because they forgot what it was that the character was supposed to have eaten. That kind of, it really lurched from notion to notion without coming back to very many of them. Uh, and this film does, to its defense, a better job of actually returning to emphasize visual things in a sort of aha and here's where the other shoe drops sort of way. Blatantly, kind of ham-handedly to the point where in the absence of the previous film to compare it to, I would just complain about this because it was really, really plotting almost. Yeah. Uh, 
there was there were all there basic there were very few surprises in this film in the little details because every little detail that was going to be involved in like a murder or something first did a little dance in an earlier scene saying hey look at me i bet i'm going to be significant so uh so yeah i mean it's that's a very weird very faint sort of praise but this film did manage to cohere on some of the small arc details and callbacks yeah, no, it, it it definitely did, but it was so much less uh, coherent, like, temporally, I guess, where in the previous movie, it would just, like, bounce between scene and scene, and you're kind of a little confused what's in the past, what's in the present, but there's generally, like, a trajectory going to it. This movie does not have that. It just bounces between just, like, different setups and, like, recurring elements, and – but it – it's it does it so incoherently you're never really quite sure how much time is passing what's going on if whether two people meeting if this is the first time they're meeting that's continued if it's another time it they make it they just yeah this is not a, great this is a film that revels in in the the flashback concept and it, it approaches it in a number of ways and uh, a little bit later I might return to this and try and create a stirring weak defense of the film conceptually. In reference to that, but yeah, generally speaking, it's a very uh, – this is a film I, – I, I talked during the last podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, at length uh, about uh, my frustration with it was all just a dream endings to films. Like a, a film where weird stuff happens and there's inexplicability you know, all over everything and then it turns out it was all inexplicable because it was all just a dream or you know, some hellscape – thing uh i find that very yeah, frustrating because it robs well yeah it, it, it robs it robs any explanatory power or need for motivation from the film all of a sudden you just say oh of course it didn't make sense it was a crazy dream hallucination whatever uh but in that film's defense at least it only did it like that one time at the end yeah uh, this... well i shouldn't say that there was a there was actually at one point the the crooked cop did have a dream that he then woke up from and then go play a sort of replay of it but but still, this film, I, 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 the third or fourth time I was typing sarcastically, but it was all just a dream in my notes in all caps. <laughs> and then eventually I got to writing, you know, but it was all just, uh, fuck it. Because like it, it, it just keeps happening. It's always just a dream. Every terrible, weird thing happens. He then wakes up from and it happens yeah. like a dozen fucking times in the movie. And, you know, you really rob that mechanic of any power at all. When it becomes so predictable that you're like, oh, well, he's going to wake up. Yep. Oh, he's going to wake up. Yep. You know, it's like when the viewer is tired of it, you have really shot past the useful mark of using that as a framing device in a scene. You can't, you can't just keep doing it. You know, it's like once in the crotch with a football, it's funny. If that's all that happens again and again throughout your film. I think that'd still be pretty. I, okay, I would well, rather have watched that. <laughs> Let's assume that every time he we, we, he wakes up from something, uh, which is the end of every single scene and the beginning of every next scene. Yes, yes. That, that is how they literally. do edits in this film. Every time they do that, it's usually a sort of medium close shot of him, like from the torso up, uh, or even close in on the face, and he sort of like oftentimes sort of sits up startled or or, or winces forward startled. Let's imagine he's being hit in the balls by a football at that moment. That's that's what's going on. It's th- he's lucky that football is there, or he would never escape each of these terrible dream sequences. <laughs> oh man, this is this is some much of a better movie now that it's, I think of it like that. It, I, it becomes conceptually rich. This movie was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> 
It deserved to uh, win that award on The Simpsons. Um, <laughs> do you know who starred in this? Do you know this Dean Winters guy? Yes, it's Dennis Duffy. This is my favorite thing about the movie. This guy, uh, he's a... Uh, He's he would be known by contemporary viewers of stuff for a couple things. One is for playing Dennis Duffy, Liz Lemon's shithead ex-boyfriend, recurring character on Thirty Rock, and also as the guy on the I think Allstate commercials, uh, where he's like, you know, I I I'm a rotten tree limb. You're just driving along, minding your own business, and then I fall on your car and fuck it up, and you didn't have insurance, so fuck you. Although the the commercials are written better, and and he's going to say these commercials are getting yeah. aggressive. <laughs> but that's the end. He 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 has this recurring character on these insurance commercials as a dude, uh, basically narrating uh, an act of God of some sort. You know, some larger or smaller insurance uh, related terrible thing happening. Uh, and he's sort of the personification of it. And he's sort of reveling in being this dickhead manhole that like, you know, or pothole that fucks up your car or branch that falls on your, your car or so on. So, uh, he's, he's a funny, talented comic actor and he's great at playing a funny prick in 30 rock. He, he was, he nailed it. He was wonderful. Uh, playing just sort of a prick. Uh, he's also kind of good at, and I feel like he does a good job of it in this film, but like, there's no reason to want to watch that. Like there's nothing likable about yeah, like, him being a prick in this film. So exa- exactly. Like, I mean, like in the previous movie, everybody just was acting either so poorly or overacting so severely that, you know, you could actually do something with it in this movie. It's just so bland. Every conversation is just two people talking. There's nothing, Anytime that there's interaction between people, the, the movie just completely loses any momentum it has. Yeah. Because nobody's it, – it's it, it literally seems like nobody has any idea what their character's motivation is, So, which makes it kind of hard to telegraph it to us. So I'm not really sure what was going on in half the conversations in this movie. It, it was – yeah, it was, it was really not super engaging, you know. Uh, you know, one thing I was thinking uh, that we should maybe do – uh, that we could have done for the last one too, but I don't think we would have needed to do it for the previous ones because they were much more of a uh, interesting to see where the film was going. But like starting with the previous film and this one and the next couple, they're all spec scripts that got turned into Hellraiser scripts just to save money on developing a script from scratch. Uh, when Dimension Although needed I did, it, I, I did find out that it, the 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 script was rewritten by the same person who dra- made the original draft. I think. So it wasn't I, – I don't think it was rewritten by somebody else. Ah, yeah. Maybe they hired the guy who had the script and said, hey, we need you to tweak this in. Yeah. Uh, Car- I, I actually, Carl V. Dupre, maybe. I yeah, think. he's doing the next three. He's doing this one and the two after it. Well, actually, I think, I think he gets – I think he wrote this and he wrote Hellworld. Uh, and then the other oh, guy who wrote the this, I'm the, thinking of the director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rick Bode is the director, and he directs this and the next two, uh, Deader and Hellworld. Uh, the writer, there's two writers on this film: Carl Dupre, who wrote this and also wrote Hellworld, uh, and then Tim Day, who also wrote Deader, uh, the one Carl uh-huh. didn't write. Also, Carl Dupre also wrote Prophecy Three, which was one of the ones that Walken was actually in. There's so huh. much weird f- prophecy crossover with this franchise we we really may have to look into that in the prophecy movies yeah, yeah. what the hell why um, not and they oh, also just, you know um, start no good sorry go ahead oh, i was just gonna say they, they they follow sort of a similar arc of uh going downhill and losing their uh main draw characters a horror um, franchise going downhill over I the know. course of numerous sequels that's uncanny i think this is the only two times that has ever happened it's crazy 
Have you seen uh, Puppet Master 12? Wonderful film. Just, no. <laughs> I'm not even sure there is a 12. One I, of the guys that did, directed, you, do, do you know about David Dicoteau? Uh, oh, God. Um, it's just horror fans may appreciate this, but um, so there's this guy named David Dicoteau. He directed um, a couple of horror movies, um, one of them like one of the Puppet Master sequels. But now he's got a career making two very different kind of films. One kind of film is um, just like the cheapy Walmart, like $4 DVD, you know, the puppy saves Christmas kind of thing. The other is a series of softcore gay porn movies called 1313 that are oh, all God. shot on one location. Yes, you showed me this like a couple months ago, and it was amazing. I was watching terrible trailers and sort of reviews of them, and oh my well, gosh. Well, if you have Netflix, there's a lot of them on Netflix. Oh, Jesus. Oh, man. Yeah. Ah. I don't I'm not, even know I'm if not there's sure if I could sit one, but I feel in this, like... or if it's all innuendo, but yeah. Yeah, from, from what I was reading after you, you pointed it out to me, it seems like it may all just be sort of like, like you could almost convince someone that like, you know, these are films by a guy who just doesn't understand that you usually should have clothes on your characters. Like there may not even really be much in the way of like sex going on or even sexy times. It's just more like a really badly made film using people who can't act, who just happen to be very fit young men in their underwear. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't decided whether I'm willing to uh, actually develop a direct opinion on this. Cause they sounded like they were all terrible. Like he would shoot several at the same time, you know, after renting a house in LA with a pool. And so they'd all be shot at the same house. You could see the same stairs and the same pool and the same actors. I think actors. that's why they're all called 1313. Is it, is, I think that's, that house is that, number is 1313. Oh, man. That would do it. That would tie it all together. Well, yeah. That would uh, – yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How did we even get on this? I don't know. You just you we just, have a movie you, to talk about. I think you just – I think you just – you're really excited about that guy. You're, you're looking for any chance you can talk about his oeuvre. Um, well, I'm excited about the oeuvre. Yeah. Uh, well, but what was I going to say? It's like now that we sort of moved in the realm of spec strips that, that are clearly not Hellraiser films to begin with, it might be useful to just do an actual straight up capsule summary of the film since we're going to like talk about every little detail anyway. This film is basically about a man who, and if you still haven't figured out that you need spoiler alerts at this point in the franchise, uh, spoiler alert, but we're going to spoil everything. Uh, this is about a guy played by Dean Winters, Dennis Duffy uh, from 30 Rock. I, he's just Duffy in my notes. His real name's Trevor in the film, but uh, fuck that. Duffy. Um, his wife, Kirsty Cotton, star of the first two films. Uh, and, and they got the actress back, too, and she's, in the meanwhile, forgotten how to act. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know that she acted a whole lot less in this film. <laughs> she just, uh, but we'll talk about that. But uh, but yeah, Kirsty Cotton from the first two films and a brief video cameo in the third uh, is back, and she's married to a guy named Dennis Duffy. But the film opens with them having a little bit of a complicated emotional moment in their car, and then driving off a bridge, and Kirsty drowns, and then Duffy wakes up. Uh, as he does so many times in this film. Uh, and it turns out it's a month later, and his he's having all sorts of amnesia problems, and they haven't been able to find Kirsty, and maybe they think he's a suspect in a murder of Kirsty. Uh, and so then he goes through the whole film not knowing what's going on, not remembering, getting occasional bits of flashbacks here and there, and also being approached and rebuffing a variety of uh, uh, sexy women in his life 
uh, who he is seeming like he thinks it's totally inappropriate that they're approaching him sexually. Uh, and then as things unwind, he eventually, we start seeing flickers of uh, Cenobites. He starts having his sexy lady friends showing up dead. Uh, he keeps having weird hallucinations of them dying, and then he wakes up, and it was all just a dream. But then they turn out to be dead after all once he finds them. Uh, and uh, he's got a buddy from work who is being weird. And it turns out in the end that the buddy from work uh, had made a deal with him to work together to kill his wife, Kirsty, because she had a big inheritance uh, that we'd never heard about previously, but kind of we can believe it. Her her father and uncle Frank owned some properties. Yeah, or, they had some financial like instruments that. or something uh, that they left her. So she's loaded, and and he's unhappy in his marriage. And he has been sleeping with all these sexy ladies who he then, in the bulk of the film, can't seem to remember having anything going on with. Uh, and so it turns out what happened was he made a deal uh, to kill her off and split the money with his work buddy. Uh, maybe they were more than buddies. Uh, and, uh, the, the deal somehow involved, this is, this is where you, it, it's, it's retelling this movie, you know, chronologically that, that you realize just how shoehorned in the Hellraiser part is. Exactly. Cause, cause apparently central to making this deal with his buddy to kill his wife for, uh, uh, the insurance or, or, or the inheritance, uh, he somehow needed to go to a creepy abandoned warehouse sweatshop, who knows merchant of, uh, fine, weird occult goods and buy a, uh, a box off of this mysterious dude. He's never met based on a business card that says nothing but all problems solved in a tacky font. Uh, so somehow that happened and that was part of the process of killing his wife for her inheritance. And that's where everything goes south. Cause the merchants actually pinhead. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the actor is Doug Bradley. I, I didn't realize that until I read the credits. Yeah, no, uh, it totally was him. Played the, the, the merchant, um, uh, the best way I could describe him is, is, is Severus Snape as played by Tommy Wiseau. Yes. Yes. I definitely had the Severus thing. And I think the, 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 the Tommy Wiseau thing is a, a good way to frame the presentation. Like if Severus Snape was sort of a, 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 a weird douchebag, uh, who ran a curio shop, I guess. So anyway, Duffy went apparently and bought this box that brought Pinhead into the situation, but somehow that was part of a deal to get rid of Kirsty. But then it turns out that Kirsty uh, got confronted or confronted Pinhead and found out that this was going on and then made a deal to instead give Pinhead five souls if he would not collect her. And Pinhead accepts. And so Kirsty's actually been not dead this whole film and skulking around the edges somehow and murdering these sexy women who his husband, her, her husband was cheating on her with. And, uh, also his business partner slash co-conspirator. And then finally him, uh, and, and this doesn't really, Oh, none of it really makes sense <laughs> when you really try and look at carefully, but that's, that's the basic shape of it. You know, he can't remember what happened. He has flashes of guilt. He has weird, his sins come back to haunt him. And then at the end, he finds out that not only is he in this weird, terrible situation where he did terrible things, but, uh, he's being played the whole time as well. And he's, he was doomed before he had any idea what was going on. And that's, that's, that's the arc of the film. Um, which is not super different from the arc of Inferno. You know, once again, we've yeah, got someone who's done terrible things being uh, chased down by their sins. Yeah, it's um, it it's 
rather similar to the previous movie in a lot of ways, especially the story arc. I just wanted to mention, I, I found a copy of the script, and I've been reading it. It's pretty different than the movie that it ended up being. Um, there's there yeah there's there's a bunch of stuff the the one that really jumped out at me is that there was supposed to be an entire other character who's supposed to be like Trevor's lawyer and he ends up you know getting the money at the end it's it's some <laughs> it, it feels just as shoehorned in as everything else but I just want to talk about the original opening scene to the movie the one that we saw was uh, the the opening scene that we saw is that um, Trevor and Kirsty are in their piece of shit car on some highway. And they're having like, you know, they're, they're, they're goofing around and then, you know, one of them turns to the other and says, it's like, well, well, you know, what if we try to make this work or something like that? So, you know, it's supposed to be like the scene of like a couple who's having a hard time is, um, Mary's you know, on reconciling. The rock. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then they, they, they make out in the car and the car go, you know, goes over the, the bridge and that's how it ends up in the water. So originally the movie opened with, uh, Kirstie and Trevor quizzing each other on the cube roots of things. <laughs> Like, literally, the first line of the movie is supposed to be, okay, cubic root of 9,261. And they go back and forth until Kirsty gets one wrong. And so they pull over well, and she's she never blows had much, Trevor. She's never had much uh, luck with cubes. So, <laughs> Oh, wow. That just, I uh-huh. just got that. Uh-huh. Wow. That <laughs> but but continue. So she blows him, you were saying. She, she blows him. And then he's just like, well, maybe not right now. And then the camera's supposed to zoom down and she's supposed to be like eight months pregnant. Um, and that's how the movie begins. And she's supposed to be pregnant throughout the whole movie. And like her motivation for doing this, she's actually supposed to have motivation for what she's doing outside of self-preservation, <laughs> Crazy, which is to defend her, like to protect her child. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I'm pretty glad they cut that out because I mean, it's just the weirdest way to open a movie. Well, and yeah, I it would have yeah, it, it, it done nothing to help the already problematic vibe of once again, sort of like soft core porn thriller in this film. Yeah, uh, I, I have a feeling that the uh, what's her name, um, Ashley Lawrence, is that her? Yeah, I, yeah. I have a feeling that uh, yeah, the the actress Ashley Lawrence just read that and was just like, no, no, that's not happening. None of that. Yeah, I could see that getting re- written right out there. Well, and you know, okay, so I don't know how much of this you looked into, but. Uh, uh, she got pulled in like she got signed like the Friday before they started shooting Monday. Like this was a this was a, uh, a an ongoing complicated effort by the filmmakers to get her involved. Uh, I got a couple quotes from an interview with Tim Day, uh, one of the writers, uh, talking about some of this. Uh, and let's see, where is this? Um, he's saying, uh, Ashley. Uh, and this is a quote, Ashley had started acting in commercials and her agent was really trying to block us from getting the script to her. Uh, but Doug Bradley stepped in and called her himself. And apparently Doug, yeah, called her up on the phone and said, Hey, we're doing another Hellraiser. And she was like, yeah, okay. Uh, and uh, another quote from, from Tim Day is that Dimension had actually told Rick and I that they didn't want Clive to know we were making Hellseeker until he saw it at Blockbuster. So they didn't want Ashley, <laughs> Ashley's, Ashley's agent didn't want her touching this thing. Uh, Dimension didn't it want Clive Barker to know that it was existing. Career. Yeah. And, and, and according to a couple quotes by people who are not Clive, Clive actually loved it and thought it was the best uh, film since Hellraiser 2. Um <laughs> There's no quote from Clive Barker on his own website about this, even on the website that all of this comes from. So it's a, it's hard to know exactly, but apparently, you know, allegedly he just completely loved it. But yeah, so like they, they hired her on, they got her involved. Doug, you know, 
got her on the phone and and she signed on and uh so apparently Tim Day had to do last minute rewrites uh just to make it work with her and I think maybe that's one of them maybe that was like uh, yeah let's make her not pregnant and no uh having to blow Dennis Duffy at the start of the film uh and even at that apparently she she broke the ensuing uh embargo on talking about the film cuz like dimension had a gag order apparently maybe just cuz they knew it was terrible um <laughs> but for whatever reason they had this gag order and she's like the one person apparently who ended up breaking it uh by making some comment to Fangoria about the whole thing being terrible and how she got paid enough to buy a new refrigerator uh so you know that that's a good article we should maybe try and track down sometime that <laughs> Fangoria thing but uh yeah it sounds like the whole thing was supposed was... to be a cover story too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so yeah, it sounds like it was a it was it was, it was maybe a real mess uh, just to get her involved, and and maybe after the fact she was not super thrilled uh, that that ended up happening, but I don't know. Yeah, I've I've really never seen a a actor on the screen dislike the movie that they're in as much as she did. I I have no doubt that the when she gets angry in this movie, it's real. That that's that's, <laughs> that's the real one time anger she's not acting. Being involved. They they actually had to loop it in to so so instead of just like shouting like Pinhead or 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 Duffy's name, she she was you know originally just shouting like the directors and 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 Doug's name, and you know <laughs> they did a really good job of the looping. Uh, <laughs> All of her dialogue is ADR. <laughs> Let's see. So so the film, the title sequence, I always mention the title sequence. The title sequence, once again, looks kind of like shit compared to the first few movies. It's a different font. It looks like Time's New Roman. You know, yeah, it just looks, it looks a, cheap and it's like red with a sort of black stroke effect around it. Uh, all a over a big CGI cube. Yeah, big, big, big shot of the box spinning. And uh, yeah, it was like nothing much else to say. Just like it, it's, it, it continues to feel very direct to video. So. And then there's like spooky uh, guitar music. Like it's it's supposed to be like you know kind of like a horror movie soundtrack, but there's guitar in it. And so between that and the crappiness of the opening and the bad CGI, it really felt like I was watching the opening to you know like Hellraiser the series that was shot <laughs> in 1987. Um, yeah, that, it's really did feel like that. It looked like it was the opening of a show that has a cult following now, but was canceled after one season in 1987. Yep. Um, I have a feeling that the um, the car going over the embankment in the opening scene. I feel like that was the most expensive shot in the movie. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of a lot of money on the screen in this one. No, I mean there, there was, was a brain surgery scene. Um, where I, I noticed this because they keep so uh, Trevor like is inexplicably having brain surgery and it looks a lot like the surgery scene from uh, Hellraiser two, two yes. yeah two yes it seems like a um, conspicuous callback to that exactly but and, and it's funny because so there's the shots of them going to the brain shots of his face shots of them going to the brain shots of his face there is not a single composite shot of them doing surgery while he's sitting in the thing yeah. They yeah they they couldn't even afford to to make that kind of shot which is um, really indicative and like all of the dead bodies are just people with fake blood in random spots on their body yeah yeah they they, they did I, I would say that's that's fair they did a lot of sort of uh, there was tight, a dismemberment in the shots. script there was um, Gwen the the sexy boss all of the women in this are sexy something because all of the women in this are are inexplicably attracted to the main character and constantly trying to fuck him with just no provocation they're, and they're all very sexually aggressive and i mean i 
I mean, I, I guess they're supposed to... So he's in hell the whole time, so I guess that's supposed to be like some like weird pleasure aspect of hell, but really it's just bad... Um, I was going to say it's a bad role model for children. No, that's not it. <laughs> it's just really, just really bad way of writing women. Um, well, yeah, and I think I think the whole idea is like if because I'm going to dither on that he's supposed to be in hell the whole time thing. Not not that the film doesn't suggest at the end that he was experiences all in some sort of hell hallucination, whatever. But clearly, the original script did not have that going, and I think they were just all being aggressively sexual and whatnot because that's in theory who he really was before he forgot it all after the trauma of. Kirsty drowning, et cetera, et cetera, is that like, you know, he couldn't remember and he couldn't remember that he was such a douchebag that they were basically responding in kind to their shared sexual history by saying, hey, let's have another round of the good old doing the sex times with each other thing. In the break room. Yes. The office break room. She, uh, Gwen, his, his, his boss, goes down on him in the break room. And this is, I don't remember, and I think like, Right after it, where he's just like, "Hey, we can't do this here." She's like, "All right, well then, go back to work and yeah, get remember, some fucking work watching. done." Yeah, get yeah. some fucking work done. And then she points. Everybody's always pointing at the cameras in the office. That's one thing that is never at any point resolved. Where um, anytime something goes on in the office, every every conversation is ended with, "It's like now try to get some work done." You know, they're always watching. They point at like this moving, really ominous, like really complicated security camera. It's got like a boom mic on it and a blinking red light, and it's swaying from side to side. Um, and nothing ever comes of that. Yep. Um, but yeah, so so yeah, she they, she tries to you know seduce him in the office break room. And then, you know, when he doesn't want to do it, she points out the, the camera that's watching him work. Um, and cameras actually play a recurring theme in this. They are. They, 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 they do. That's, that's a whole thing. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so... so, so oh, I, where I was going was, this, was that she was supposed to be dismembered. Oh, right, right, um, right. Yeah, so what had the, in the original script, basically, like, um, you know, they, they have this thing that happens in the break room, and then he goes to talk to his coworker, Bert, or whatever. And he was just like, um, you know, he just mentions the fact that they had sex, that she came on to him. He's just like, what's wrong with you? You know, she's been dead for six months. They found her dismembered all over the office. And then he goes on his computer where he was previously looking at sexy pictures of her, and all the sexy pictures turn into pictures of the dismemberment. This is a scene that was supposed to be in there, it wasn't. Nothing even remotely like that was in this movie. <laughs> Let's just talk about the script. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see you next week. Josh is going to read the script, and yeah. we're, we're just going to have another talking about how how great the script is and how great a movie based on this would be. Yeah. Well, I, I could I, I could sort of be down for like you know a read through the script versus what ended up on the screen at some point, but. Uh... But yeah, so so okay. So also, I want to say like like the the convenient ramp on the bridge that the that the car went off. Oh, uh, for yeah. once, we know where a Hellraiser film is taking place. This takes place in Hazard County. It's a uh, oddly appropriate five, name. Five, five, five minutes later, you know the 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 General Lee came flying off that and uh, <laughs> Boss Hog close behind, but didn't clear the jump. Um, <laughs> Speaking of um, things being named, did you see the name of the company that he works for? No, what was it? The so he he works in like you know he's like a cube drone type of guy. But he <laughs> cube works, drone. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, uh, wait, wait for it. He okay. works for Cubic Route Actuarial Advice Advisors. Or advisors. Oh. Yeah, but their logo is a triangle. Yeah. Well, yeah. The that's the 
Le Marchand's pyramid. Yeah, which which, which uh, well, which configuration is that? The uh, there's the lament configuration, and then the uh, whatever the the pyramidal one, the pointy double sided. Oh, yeah, but I think the Leviathan configuration. Yeah, probably that sounds yeah. cool. Yeah. The stabby <laughs> Four most Hellraiser scholars, ladies and gentlemen. We are experts. <laughs> what was that thingy in that one? Uh, <laughs> hey, remember that time Hellraiser killed everybody? That yep. was great. Also, I want to say about the, the, the scene with the, the opening scene with the crashing into the water and then Kirstie being trapped in there. There's a very conspicuous thing where Dennis gets up to the surface and he goes, he's like, where's Kirstie? He goes back down to try and rescue her out of the car. And we get a close-up shot of the car door closing itself which is totally a Hellraiser 1 uh, attic, Hellraiser 2 hospital room sort of deal, like the self-closing door. So that was a, I feel like that was a, I, I don't know if it's an intentional note, but it, I, I blame everything on that crazy attic door from the first film. So I feel like this, this was like a Ford creepy attic is what they were driving. It's the true villain of this series is doors. Yeah. So he wakes up, uh, he wakes up in the hospital. Wait, actually, I have a question for you oh, because I, you, you drive a car, right? I do. I don't know very much about cars. Um, the car goes underwater, and they can't get the doors open. And I've seen that happen in just so many movies. Is that a thing that happens? Does going underwater disable the car doors somehow? No, it's it's a it's a dumb. Th- well, okay. So here's the thing: there is a situation where conceivably you can be in a car in the water, and it would be difficult to open the door. And that's because the pressure outside from being in water is significantly higher than the pressure inside from an air-filled car. So from there, trying to push open the door would actually be difficult. But the thing is, the more water gets into the car the less of an issue that is and like the standard uh, how to survive driving your car into a river advice that i've heard is actually crack the windows a little bit you know like roll them down so that the water can actually get in fairly efficiently um because once the water's in then you can open the door so you can sort of plan for it that way uh uh, equalize the pressure and then the door will open just fine because like it's only as hard as it is to open a door in a viscous fluid you know uh, so yeah, it's it's a dumb thing. Uh, once, okay, once your so water's filling, once your car's actually filling with water, it's a dumb thing that the door would not open. That's just silly bullshit that uh, makes for an exciting dumb scene in a crappy movie. Yeah, and, and I mean, like retroactively, they explain why that happens, and it's because you know why they they have such trouble with the doors, and it's because he's shot and and dead, and she gets out just fine. But like in the uh, the opening scene, as the opening scene, yeah, these doors are inexplicably locked, and then Kirsty drowns to death, and I'm going to say 45 seconds. Yeah, yeah, she's just she's dead real quick. It's uh, drowning is well, I mean, dying in movies is always stupidly fast, even in scenes where it's supposed to be a dramatic moment. But uh, but yeah, she uh, she drowns awfully quick. She drowns before, so he gets uh, he while he gets out of the car, she's still conscious. I think he surfaces, goes back down, and by that time she's dead, like dead. And I, I mean, so but she doesn't. She doesn't. She's not really dead, but but yeah, I, yeah. But hey, it was all just a dream, so it doesn't matter. Which is that's why you don't do that, you stupid fucking filmmakers. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, um, it's it's like they're covering with their inability to actually you know script things in a way that even remotely resemble how they happen. And they're just like, oh, it's just his subconscious making up for the fact that this doesn't make sense because it's not what happened. Yeah, and yeah, that's there, there's a lot of that in this movie. So um, I, I want to talk about what mm-hmm. they do at the uh, at, 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 after that, like the second thing. He wakes up. Oh my gosh! But he's actually he's just fine. He's in the hospital, uh, and there's a blonde nurse played by I swear to God, like uh, it's like Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall. It's weird the, the, how much this lady looks like. 
do you know what her character's name is in both the script and on IMDb? Uh, it's Allison. Oh, is it? Oh, I, I thought we were talking about somebody different. Because the, there, there the, is a credit for an angular nurse. No, no, that's a different one. That's, that's oh. she, 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 she shouts at him later in the film when he gets up from the hospital and wanders off. And, and Oh, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Allison does look like Dave Foley. And yeah. We should side by side that on the blog. Yep. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so he, she, she's there like being like calming him down and blah, blah, blah. And like the uh, older, white haired, mustachioed, uh, medical fellow is there as well uh but then then we go to we we cross cut somehow to the scene where he is strapped into yeah like a head restraining thing in a creepy medical horror dungeon hospital situation and the brain surgery scene you referenced uh earlier uh takes place uh where a guy's sort of like monologuing about well and here we do 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 and a nurse is like it's very important that you stay still and they've got his head in one of those things where you like you screw down their strains to keep it still but they haven't screwed him down like at all <laughs> so it's like why no, you're not doing it right you creepy medical people but anyway so then then the, the then the guy sticks pins in his brain because they're going to try and find you know the separation between pleasure and pain even this though this film explores none of that with definitely the traditional <laughs> hellraiser way this guy st- and, and and they're like they're like office push pins like this sort of like t t shaped uh bent wire ones and he just pushes ones in there and duffy screams and then he wakes up from that uh and duffy ends up having uh headaches throughout the film uh, yeah, just and, like and, surprise, and yeah. like violent headaches, yeah, and, acty headaches. Yeah, and, and the implication is maybe that this is tied to this thing we see, but the film never, ever, ever comes back to this. This seems like it, like this is supposed to be some sort of meaningful, oh, but what's really going on is this terrible thing. Except no, apparently this one was in fact all just an actual dream. Like this <laughs> is the one thing in the film that he thought happened but didn't really happen but then really didn't happen it, it it wasn't like some vision of something he would then later stumble on and realize oh my god i'm in the hospital being brain surgery no no it never never comes back nope yeah, it's um, it's oh it's amazing that they i i feel like that entire scene existed just to somehow link this in some possible way to one of the other movies with something that isn't Kirsty, because they're like, you know, if we're trying to link it somehow, you know, maybe we can't just rely on people, you know, recognizing this is supposed to be the same character. Maybe we should. And then I, I, I can't finish that sentence because I can't get from there to making that scene happen. Yeah. It's, I, I don't, I don't know what it's doing there other than it gives them a chance to put pins in his head, pins uh, yep. in his head. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. and, and the guy has a line there. He says, let's see if we can pinpoint what's causing your headaches. Pinpoint yeah, headache. Pinpoint headache. At the end of the movie, um, Trevor accuses Pinhead of trying to pin this murder on him. <laughs> uh, and there's – I actually wrote it down. There is a number of instances where they, they make – you just, you know, some sort of like pins or illusions revolve. I mean, puns or Jesus Christ, I'm infected. Shoot me now. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess we'll get to it at some point in my notes. But yeah, that that's not the first time and that's not the last time that happens. Oh, wait, actually, I think it might be the first time. You know, yeah, <laughs> l- 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 I want to I redo that a little bit there and, and just do the thing. I, I want you to talk about how. Uh, the film was making uh, a pun, just 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 like short form, something along the lines of re- rephrasing what I just said. Uh, the, the, it's like the movie's trying to make a pun. Michael, they're called illusions. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, <sighs> uh, 
you just use your illusion? Yes. Sam is very self-contained right there. Uh, basically, what I'm saying is I'm as talented as the guy who writes Arrested Development. Um, uh, so, yeah, okay. So, we're <laughs> like 40 minutes into this phone call, and we're talking about the second scene of the film. <laughs> um Every, uh, I, I just wanted to say that just you remember the scene um previous in inferno where he stumbles across um other de- detective stumbles across other detective i i all of their names are blank right now sure. and he's got daggers in his back because he's been stabbed in the back yes if you draw that out to t- an hour and a half that's this movie kind of kind of yeah just like all of the just just any kind of signifiers of anything is just the laziest fucking um just job you could possibly do on it and there was um oh what was i gonna say there was a bus scene because he crashed his car so now he has to take the bus home from work that's kind of how i read that and he so he's always on the bus is that the the, it, the bus scene was done very very similar to the one that they did in um hellraiser three with joey riding the bus three it was three because it was joey it was joey on the bus in three and yeah i i had the same i was like oh my god he rides the same bus as joey uh and and the bus <laughs> is the number three to maine uh, I, 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 I did not notice any obvious this is where this film is taking place stuff you know jokes about Dukes of Hazard aside uh, and I kind of wonder if like someone would recognize I'd say oh well clearly they shot this I think maybe they shot it like in Canada somewhere yeah, that's, uh, because there's a I, lot I of weird Canadian uh, overlap in the credits too a bunch of people who were, worked on this worked on various other things that were also made in Canada as far as I can tell so, so probably it was like a Toronto bus or something but uh but who knows? But yeah, no, they've got that sh- that shitty green filter on the bus. And you know, I was really excited about the busing because I, I I had forgotten enough of this film that I was, uh, you know, like, oh, that's uh, you know, I had a couple hanging questions that were only resolved at the end when I realized they weren't <laughs> resolved. But when he's on the bus and he's looking around and there's there's unpleasant looking people sitting on the bus and we get close up shots of several of them and I've really felt like because the film comes back to so many things, I was really hoping this was going to come back to. Uh, these people as like Cenobite bus, like they'd all be like freaky looking demons at some point. Uh, like in that scene in Communion where Christopher Walken's character sees everybody on the bus turn into giant insects or whatever. Oh yeah, that would have been. I mean, they actually did that. They the ending is like literally, uh, and you were there, and you yeah, were there, yeah, and you were there, kind yeah. of ending. Um, and so one of the, the guy from the bus comes back. Because uh, there, there's yeah there, oh there, there's a big guy in a bus and he's playing music yeah and bald Trevor's guy like, with hey. piercings and he's got a boombox yeah and I mean I'm, he probably played one of the Cenobites sure why not they never actually you know made a one to one thing in it but um, yeah so he turns his, tells this guy to turn his music down and then the guy turns his music up ooh yeah and I was hoping that guy would come back later as like a, a Cenobite yeah. named Boombox or something you know and he'd have like <laughs> speakers coming out of his fists but uh, but no. We do see him later in the police precinct uh, wearing a police jacket when yep. things are started to go properly weird. So, you know, yeah, that's sort of tying into, oh, wait. Basically, well, we should say, I mean, I, I, the, th- the comment I've seen people make, and this is right on the money, basically, is that this film is basically uh, a total ripoff of, of Jacob's Ladder, a much better film about someone who is basically yep. hallucinating an elaborate hellscape in their dying moments. Uh, so basically, the the short version is just go watch Jacob's Ladder. It's a pretty good movie. Yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's 
So yeah, the punk on the bus, and and uh, there, we start seeing memories of Kirsty. This film uses multiple different color filters for things. There's the green filter on the bus. There's sort of a blown out uh, white filter on some of the memories of Kirsty. There's also a blue filter on some of the memories with Kilster. Yeah. I, I think the, the the badder memories, or maybe the more recent memories. All of the um, office stuff uses the blue filter, and the warehouse where he gets the box all uses the green filter. Yeah. I remember that. And yeah, oh, and then there's, um, what do you call it? Uh, hand cam shots, because he's got this just enormous camera. This movie, I, I, I'm not that up on video technology, but that's kind of a giant camera for 2002. Well, it, not if it's like a, a good one. Like you, you could argue that that may have been the extra camera that they were like. That was one of the two cameras they were shooting this film on. For all I know, ah, um, <laughs> it was cheaper than renting a prop. <laughs> possibly. But no, it, it would be a, it would be a big piece of prosumer equipment. But it's not crazy or anything. It's just you know that would be like a two thousand dollar video camera instead of it's like just a so bulky. I guess they just cut down the size of them. Yeah. Uh, because of uh, what he called digital, yeah, the, uh, the CCDs or whatever. Uh, let's see. Oh, there's a literal Chekhov's gun in this movie. Oh yes, yes. There's um, he's putting away. So uh, the the scenes of him and Kirsty in flashback. Some of them are their honeymoon night, or it's supposed to be according to the script. You can't really. I don't think you could, it. I think it's in the movie. It ends up being their anniversary night or something. No, but it he was. Gives yeah, them, in the movie, it's oh, like their a, anniversary. Yeah, it's like a fifth anniversary. I think in the in the movie. So um, he uh, he gives her the box as a gift, and I assume that's how. Uh, it, it, the movie really is not clear on why she accepts it or why she she opens it. Just despite him, it's it's really unclear, and they don't spend a lot of time on it for exactly that reason, I assume. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so he's supposed to be like an avid videotaper of things, and he videotapes him and Gwen fucking in his house, um, and he's got this big stack of videotapes, and he, when he's going to you know get a videotape or put a videotape back, there's a gun up there. And I'm really struggling to remember whether that gun comes back. No, it does. It does. That's the gun that uh, Kirsty kills him with, oh, and everybody else. Okay. So no, that that, that that's okay. what I'm saying. That one, like, it was really conspicuously framed, and so he pulls out the VHS from the shelf, sort of shooting from above. He's reaching up and pulling this box of VHSs off, and uh, and the gun is there in the shot, and sort of the shot lingers for a moment there, and that's the gun. That uh, that she shoots him with, and apparently shot everybody else with, maybe, uh, and also at one point he was uh, his buddy Brett shot himself with, and and that's a whole thing because all these all these people died. Brett Brett his work buddy confronts him late in the film, and it's like oh it's all going fucked up. Uh, and there's actually a great line here uh, where Brett says to him, uh, "Where is it?" Um, I, I see I should plan ahead with these these uh, <laughs> things. But uh, basically, Brett is like, hey, we had a plan, and now it's gone all to shit. And, uh, and you know, everything's... So he's threatening, he's threatening Duffy yeah. with the gun. And he says, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in prison. I'd rather spend it in hell with you. And then Brett shoots himself through the head. And I want a, a couple points here. <laughs> That's not the rest of your life, Brett. That's the afterlife. You just ended the rest of your life. You're not going to spend the rest of your life in hell. You're going to spend your afterlife in hell. And also, if you want to spend it in hell with Duffy because you're really angry at him for getting into the situation, shoot him first. Because obviously you're pissed at him. 
you know, he led you into this and, and you're not worried about the legal repercussions of anything because you're about to kill yourself. What if Duffy, after you shoot yourself in the head, takes that <laughs> as a prompt to repent and really he gets right with the Lord and, and changes <laughs> his ways? Then you're stuck in hell forever and your frenemy's not even there. I think it was I very, just, very bad planning on his part. It was, but what I what I suspect is that Brett is actually a very, very strict fundamental solipsist who's come to terms with it. Oh. And by shooting himself in the head, it might, he might as well just be killing everybody because nothing exists outside of Bert. I, I like that. I, I accept that uh, interpretation. I think that's a good one. Um, you really, it's a you very really interesting character if you read too much into him. But part of the thing is Brett has the gun, and the notion is that, is that everybody who dies, Kirsty was responsible for killing, directly or indirectly, I guess, but presumably fairly directly because she basically makes a deal to collect souls for Pinhead. So she must have gotten Brett this gun. It's the same gun. She must have gotten it to him and gotten him in a freaked out suicidal thing so she knew he would kill himself with it. And that's a little bit of orchestration that the film really doesn't set up any mechanism for. My uh, my actual interpretation of the scene was that this is another one of uh, hallucinations or just like memories of something that didn't actually happen. And it's just implied that Kirstie just shot him at some point. See, I could, I could buy that. The film unfortunately doesn't do anything to set that up, no. but, uh, but yeah, I could buy that. That's what's supposed to be going on. But again, it's so dissatisfying then that, that he's just, cause why would he, why would he experience that happening if it didn't really happen? And he wasn't involved and Brett was just somewhere killing or some, somewhere being shot by Kirsty. <sighs> okay. So here's the thing. Here's the problem with the way the film ends. And then everything that happened before the film ends, we find out the implication uh, in the final scene or, or final scenes that I'm taking is pinheads, final words uh, confronting a, a chained and hooked up Duffy, um, is, is, is he says, uh, welcome to the worst nightmare of all reality. Apparently my pinhead sounds kind of like Nixon, uh, reality. I was say it was, yeah. uh, more of a, what do you call it? The Mandarin from, uh, the new Iron Man movie. I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know. Well, you did a dead on impression of Ben Kingsley somehow. <laughs> oh, go me. I, uh, yeah. Basically, what we're saying is I'm as talented as Ben Kingsley. Uh, so, so he says that, and then we get back to another flashback, and here we see that Kirstie's confronted him, and she actually blows his head off at point blank range with a gun in the car. Uh, and that uh, there's actually an alternate version of both the previous scene where Pinhead has him chained. No, 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 no. There's a version. There's an alternate version of the scene where she shoots him in the car. Yes, and an alternate scene of the uh, confrontation between Kirstie and Pinhead, which is so much better for the film than what they actually kept. That it's what the fuck were they thinking? But uh, I, I I disagree. I thought that was just I the the alternate um, scene with Kirstie was just really sloppy exposition. Well, okay, okay. Let me let, let, let me let me clarify. Well, I, I think it was folks. much better for the film as a film in an actual Hellraiser franchise. I think it's much better for a film in which they bothered to cast and bring Kirsty back. It's not necessarily a well-done scene in terms of elegant filmmaking, but that exposition explains a lot of shit that I had write, written notes saying, what the fuck, why didn't you cover this when I was watching the film? Like, I was like, I had a number of complaints about that scene in the film, and it turns out they were all answered by the actual scene they shot, that they, they cut up into little bits into, you know, this flashback palooza. Um, so yeah, not to say that it's like amazing filmmaking, but it certainly is more coherent as to the relationship between Pinhead and Kirstie in a film that ends up making Kirstie essentially the protagonist in the last quarter of the film, 
after the rest of the film's been a red herring. But that's kind of, okay, so that comes back to what I'm talking about here is Duffy gets his head blown off uh, and he's the one who was actually dead in the car in, in the water after the car crashed and Kirstie's fine. But there's been all these experiences that he's had uh, of these people dying and being healed. And somehow he manages to, in fact, intuit all of the stuff that Kirstie did at the end uh, that, that she had killed all these people, but there's no investment in like anything that happened to him in his dreamscape in this whole thing. So it's like, it's, it's a huge rug pull and not in a, Oh my gosh, they really did something there short of way. It's just more like a, why the fuck did you make this movie this way? Sort of way. I was like, they systematically robbed us of any investment in anything that happened in the film on multiple fronts. Yep. And it, the other thing is that this is completely just sort of, avoided being referenced to in any way but Kirsty uh, may very well have killed three women who had no idea why they were being killed oh yeah yeah I think that's very much yeah she makes the nasty deal to say for self-preservation or as you know from the original script maybe preservation of you know unborn child uh, to go and basically yeah murder some motherfucker she basically becomes a free agent for uh, the labyrinth or for hell however you want to interpret the mythos uh, and specifically I, I, I to save like, her own skin. Yeah, I feel like the movie was supposed to give you like a sense of like you know they had it coming because you know they they slept with her husband I guess but really just just in retrospect all it feels like is her just showing up place being like people being like who are you and getting shot yeah possibly tortured I I, don't even, I can't even figure out that part yeah it, it was it was not clear to me whether or not the various women who were killed in terrible ways were actually killed in terrible ways or if that was just like a, a secondary follow up it was all just a dream thing that Duffy never gets a chance to wake up from because in fact he's dead. Or maybe uh, if the Cenobites did it after Kurt or, and then Kurt and then Kirsty killed him or she brought the seat. Uh, yeah. yeah I feel like, I feel like I should have gone back and freeze frame the photos that we say late in the film in the precinct, uh, that show the various yeah. bodies when the, the detective is like, uh, uh, yeah, five or, or, or three or four bodies all shot, you know, with one round from, uh, you know, one, gun. yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and then, I, um, yeah. At least one of them, Tawny, was tied to a chair. Yeah. So something complicated happened there. Yes. Tawny. Um, <laughs> she was also supposed to be in the script. She was supposed to be goth. Um, and she was supposed to also turn into a Cenobite at some point. Yeah. Neither was, of these things happened. Yeah. There's really no turning into Cenobite action in this film. There was. There was a. There are turning into Cenobites. Cenobite. Yeah, uh, two or three. Uh, uh, I, I noticed two. Two. There new was ones. three Cenobites in total, but I, I I can't at this point even remember if they were new or not. Well, um, two of them were named Bound and Stitch. Yeah, uh, and then the other one was the Surgeon. I totally I missed the Surgeon somehow. I he was the one with like all of the face stuff. He just had a. Um, Oh, okay. It. I was sort of. I think I may have merged two of them that we barely saw together. That's because they all look identical. Yeah, they all look like Butterball with different face shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, that makes a little bit more sense because I was having trouble separating a couple of them, but I didn't want to bother going back and looking. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, and and Stitch is like has a face that's I guess sort of sort of like stitched together like a straight jacket almost, and then and then significant decolletage like some big. Uh, <laughs> heaving uh, cleavage uh, in otherwise a big sort of rotund uh, goth leather uh, Cenobite looking outfit. Um, and there's, there's a recurring figure as well throughout the film 
uh, of oh, the, a, the, a, the figure in the shadows. Yeah, the figure in the shadows, who's like a it seems to be a, a heavy set man wearing a basically featureless metal mask, as far as I can tell. Which we see a brief shot of well in the the warehouse sweatshop creepy merchant uh, scene early on. Uh, we see a woman sitting around, uh, a, a, a large woman sitting around, uh, wearing the same mask, and also with a couple of like sort of cloth or leather cutout cups over her breasts and otherwise pretty much sitting there naked, I think. Uh, and then there were also the weird seamstress ladies. Uh, yeah. And, and so I'm wondering if that was supposed to be sort of like, you know, them actually working on stitching up stitch or something like that. Cause there was no explanation. It just seemed like creepy imagery that threw in to be, you know, creepy. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if that was the intention or if that was just a throwaway thing, but, uh, I'm all for new Never Cenobites, know. but they really, yeah, they didn't give us much Cenobite action. There wasn't much engagement with the Cenobites. They were just sort of goons who showed up occasionally. Yeah, it was, and, yeah, it, it, I, I mean, you'd think if you're making a Hellraiser movie, you should really just put a little, little more effort into the Cenobites, but, or, or just feature them more, even if you didn't put the effort in. Well, and here's the thing, okay, I think this is sort of a, because I agree, and it seems like, like, whether or not you like that that's a major, you know, recurring feature of the films, those are the films that you're making a new one of. It's like you kind of, if you don't like it, go write a different property. Don't try and like disown it in, in a Hellraiser film probably. But that was another thing that uh, one of the things Tim Day, one of the writers was talking about is he said he came on basically when he came on, the script was already, I think Carl Dupre had essentially uh, written and rewritten to be Hellraiser, the script. Uh, and then Tim Day got brought on as a, a second writer because the script as it was wasn't totally working. Amazing. Um, <laughs> but his his take was that his job was kind of to make Duffy likable because originally in the script, I think uh, the guy was a huge asshole from like moment one, maybe a little bit more like our detective from uh, the previous <laughs> film. And so he sort of worked it to try and make Duffy like more of like a character who you could sort of – at least empathize with, maybe not like, but at least, you know, the idea he wouldn't immediately be an odious jerk so that there'd be an arc to his, you know, revelations throughout the film that he did terrible things, I guess. So I guess, you know, I mean, in a sense, he did and, that. And I wouldn't say he got as far as making Duffy anybody he, I wanted. He got to, as far as making him completely inoffensive and um, there's just, he stripped, I, I, I feel like what, from what you're telling me is that they stripped away any of the actual character of Trevor. It's it Well, it sounds like there may not have been a whole ut left uh, to Trevor after you took away being a huge dick. And, and again, Dean Winters does a great, great dick. Like he's, he just, he can be such an asshole in such, he was more charming as an asshole than as in a befuddled guy who seems to be in trouble. You know, it's like playing to his strength. So it, yeah, it does feel kind of weird. But the, the reason I thought of it is also among other things, I think Tim Day was trying to push to get a little bit away from some of the standard trappings of a Hellraiser movie. And he was talking about how like Pinhead and Le Marchand's box weren't really intended in originally to be such fixations, which I think as we've discussed is actually sort yeah. of the case. It was sort of surprised that Pinhead became this thing and, and then the box became this huge recurring image as well. So there's a scene in the, in the creepy merchants scene. You may have noticed this. He gives, he goes to give him, what we expect to be the box, and it's actually a round thing. It's a it's an ornate yeah. round puzzle object. Um, and then I guess what happens is he rolls it across the the counter, and as it rolls across the counter, uh, clunk clunk, it becomes the box. But I just was kind of annoyed 
when I was watching that yeah. scene. And so I didn't realize that was intended as a transformation, partly because I think it may not have been a transformation. It may have just been a straight edit from rolling the thing to a different shot of the box coming to a rolling stop. Uh, yeah, I had absolutely no... Um Everything you just described, I did not notice. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I noticed the sphere, and then, yeah. That, and then that, he has that, a box I, somehow. It's like, what happened? Uh, apparently, the, the the round puzzle box was one of Tim Day's ideas. He's like, well, let's, you know, let's expand on the idea of, of puzzle boxes, but get away from always coming back to the same box image. And then they got a certain point into the production or the writing process, and people were like, hey, yeah, no, I'm really liking what you got here, except, uh, you know, it's got to be a box. <laughs> and so that, instead of being the sphere throughout, it became that scene where you see the sphere and then it turns into the box and then it's a box and we've got the box at the credits. So, so that may have, yeah. it could have played out slightly differently, apparently. I, if, uh, I, I feel like that's sort of, you just go in and pitch a new James Bond movie. It's like, you know, I love this James Bond concept, but how about instead of a gun, he has a crossbow. Huh? <laughs> huh? New, did just some fresh air into the series. He's got a crossbow. He's cross. Yeah, it's, sometimes Someone- you... Someone at yeah, some point will make that prequel. They'll make it like a you know eighteen fifties James Bond, and of course he'll have you know a pistol at some point, but he'll also somehow need to have a a crossbow or something, or I don't know. I would actually love to see a merry jest of James Bond. That would be a wonderful movie. Let's let's write this. Bye, everybody. <laughs> see you next time on. We have such spec ships strips to show you. Um, oh, so so the guy who plays Duffy's asshole work buddy, Brett. Uh, is actually a guy named Trevor White, which I think may be part of why I want to not call Duffy by his actual character name of Trevor, because it just gets confusing, because then Trevor is this other guy in the film, even though that's not his name. It's it's the whole... And then there's like 12 the, Terrys involved. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. It's the Terry-Terry problem, you know. Um, in this case, we can say that I'm saying Duffy with an I, if we want to disambiguate from the 30 Rock character. Uh, but that guy is... His next credit, that guy who played Brett... Uh, on IMDb is from the same year and he was in die another day to tie it over to, to bond. Hmm. Uh, but his credited role, uh, was jump master, all one word jump master, although it's noted on IMBD as uncredited. So sometime after the fact, someone established that his uncredited name in the film was jump master. Um, so maybe I'll go looking for that sometime, but he looks a lot like Seth Myers from uh, Saturday night live. Like I'm if not he, sure who that is. I'm going to Google he, a picture he, of that while Yeah, he does the weekend update or uh, or has for a long time. I think he just stopped. Yes, he it. does. Uh, yes, he does. And so it's like he let himself go and then traveled 10 years into the past and was in this <laughs> film. Um, I just, I insult everybody who's in these films, don't I? I'm, I, I don't mean it like, I, I, I'm making the distinction between like movie star handsome and movie character actor good looking. Not between like, you know, reasonable looking person and an ugly person. Cause there hasn't really been anybody ugly in any of these movies. You know, it's the standard problem where like when your, your point of reference is like, you know, Charlize Theron and, 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 you know, Colin Farrell and so on, you know, everybody's an uggo because like, yeah, uh, you look like a normal human being who's just a bit more attractive than average. What a dog, you know? <laughs> uh, so, so wherever you are, Trevor White, if you're listening to this, you're a perfectly fine looking guy. You, uh, you looked a little speaking, bit draggled in the film, but you were under a shitty blue filter the whole time. So, Speaking of casting, um, this film has a black actor in it. It two, does. I think. It and does. one of them actually features into the plot in some way. Yeah, that's so something. That, that's new. Although, although technically he's only half black. 
Huh? Oh man, did you oh, not no. <laughs> the whole Jekyll and Hyde thing? Oh god, oh yes. Okay, I was this. gonna say if you didn't pick up oh. on that, we need to have words. Maybe we're on the wrong <laughs> podcast here. Uh <laughs> I actually the first time I saw that scene, it was actually kind of scary. Um should we you know this is the uh okay, so at some point in his, in his, this is towards the end of the movie, um there's been two detectives hounding him. Actually one's been hounding him and the other shows up in literally one scene. Where there's this one detective, just like an older black guy, and he's just like, you know, just your standard, like, detective. But he's really emotionally conflicted in that, like, he'll say one thing makes it sound like he's trying to bust Trevor. Another thing to make it sound like he's, you know, really on his side. And then being confused as to why Trevor says something. And I can't tell if he's supposed to be, like, a really good cop that's you know, keeps his, you know, target on edge at all times. Or if the actor just had no idea what the part was supposed to be and just threw in a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's weird. He, he's kind of he's 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 kind of black columbo is what he is yeah uh he's like like to the point where he actually twice in the film is starting to walk away or someone else is starting to walk away and then he turns and says oh and one more thing um but yeah he's doing the whole he's like the older grandfather like 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 kind of a cut rate uh danny clover yeah. in a good mood yes. sort of thing you know that's and so he's he's being very sort of sort of supportive but at the same time he's a detective investigating a murder and so duffy is always like you know why are you asking these questions do you think do you think i'm a suspect i, I just want to find my wife and it's like oh i don't I, I i believe you i i just i gotta do my job you know and so he'd ask pointed questions but then he'd be all grandfatherly about it. it's like and then his partner was totally just like an in-your-face asshole so it was like classic good cop bad cop but the good cops kind of got you on edge the whole time and then the bad cops just like an insane doberman who's like you know basically wants to fuck your face out to death <laughs> Um, also would have been a more entertaining movie yeah, if that yeah, happened. Actually. But they're the same um, guy, it turns out. They're, yeah. they're two halves of the whole. Oh, of course, yeah. like, there's no way... Even someone who was not paying attention would figure this out in this movie, because I forgot just now that the bad cop's face literally comes out of the back of the good cop's face in their yep. final scene on the, on the hellscape portion of the film. Uh, yeah, there's... Um, they... Oh, God... This, this is just like, you know that scene in Futurama where they have to get Zoybird for something and he sees this guinea pig and he just grabs it and then that thing descends on him and traps him and he says, friends, help, a guinea pig tricked me. <laughs> it's a lot like that, how they get uh, Trevor into the jail cell because he's just following the detective who's opening like door after door after door. And then like at the last door, he, uh, he doesn't follow Trevor and just locks him in. Um, but it turns out to be some sort of tunnel. And at this point, it's like a – anyway, so yeah. um, Trevor's like, oh, no, what did you do? Why did you lock me in? And then the uh, – just the, the black detective uh, just starts like laughing maniacally and then his body like starts contorting and then just like out of the back of his head emerges the other um, – the other detective's yeah. face on like some sort of like a gooey tentacle thing, and then they both laugh like uproariously as he runs away. And I thought that was adorable. It was it was, was kind of great. It's like okay, if this is going to be terrible, we might as well enjoy this. Uh, there's a there's a there's a thing there though. Uh, he's he's got a line before before he goes all two headed, um, where he's saying, you know, we're a lot alike, uh, the, you know, you and me. Uh, and I think this is after he's locked the, the, the final door on the guy. Uh, and he's sometimes like, hey, we've got a lot alike, uh, you and me. We're both the sum of two entirely different people. And then the bad cops. Because oh, right. not only did they just like really – because, you know, I was kind of okay 
in a oh, we're going for a, a creepy weird what's going on thing with a film the way it had presented this previously which was that you got the good cop and you got the bad cop and i'm pretty sure they were never on camera at the same time or in the room at the same time and late as the film progressed you started to get weird stuff where at one point explicitly the good cop comes to visit him at his workplace and then he's leaving and Duffy looks over and sees bad cop. And that's where you're like, Oh, okay, for sure. Something's going on here. And then they return to that a couple of times in the precinct where one of them goes through the door and the other one comes back in, but then <laughs> Duffy ends up in another room and then the other one comes back through the door. So it's like, obviously something's going on, but then they really had to nail it to the wall there with like the talking about the duality thing and some yep. of Tuman, but then they have his head come out too. And I feel like they, <laughs> as, as, as cute as it was in in this film, why not? At that point, uh, I still feel like they could have sold it a little better without without that as a creepy thing. But uh, but mm. nope. Yeah. At least we got this. I mean, at least we got an FX shot out of it. Yep. Um, you know what I have to say? Uh, so last night I, I finished watching my second you know go on this movie last night. Um, but right before that, uh, my fiance and I were watching Fireproof. The uh, the Kirk Cameron um, film about a, a a firefighter whose marriage is falling apart and is saved by Jesus and a book, <laughs> of course. Not not the good book, just a book called The Love Dare, which is an actual book you can buy to fix your relationship. Anyway, the heavy handedness of the metaphors between the two movies it was a seamless transition, <laughs> completely seamless. Going from like literally like one of his lo- like one of Kirk Cameron's first lines in that movie is um, he's like lecturing another young firefighter who tried to be a hero and set off as now he says you never leave your partner you know even in a fire you never leave your partner <laughs> and it, it's really roughly the same level of uh, of sophistication in screenwriting. Um, also, I suggest everybody see that movie because my God, that I. It's one of those movies where you know that if it, there wasn't a crazy rich person funding it, it would never have existed. Yeah, total, total sort of essentially vanity ideological project. Yep. Um, anyway, back to this awful movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the women confronting people, the, the, first, the first thing we get of that is his boss. Like he's trying to get something out of the snack dispenser and he puts in his money, but then it doesn't come out. And it's like, oh, we've all been there, right, guys? Uh, Except the only thing that comes out of the machine is is a slimy gray hand of a drowning victim slaps on the inside. Yeah. And it's like, <gasps> and you know, probably dr- someone. Oh, that's what. Okay, that that makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, yeah. It's it was, like it was slamming against the thing, like it was slamming against the, the window the car of the car. Window. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, saying, uh. you know, Duffy, why did you not give me the Cheetos? I needed them. Uh, and then, and then Can the I, boss. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I have a vending machine story that I now have an audience to relate to, and oh, it's very tell. quick. Let's, let's do it. Um, I was in college, and it was between, you know, I was waiting between uh, classes, and I went to the vending machine, and I tried to get some pretzels out, and they, they got stuck. And they got stuck, like, really close to the thing that I knew if I just shake it a little, it would come out. So, you know, I started, you know, shaking it, just trying to make sure there's nobody around, and the hallways were pretty empty. And this other guy comes up to me, he's just like, oh, is it stuck? I'm just like, yeah, he's just like, here, I'll give you a hand. This guy was just like, you know, it was just a, I, I was a little older than everybody else because I had gone back to school. So this guy was... A little older than me, but you know, I I, I couldn't you know tell who he, um, who he was. Anyway, so we're shaking this machine, and he's like really fucking going at it. I'm like, dude, watch out! Like, you know, we we shouldn't you know damage it. You know, we'll get into shit. He's like, no, no, it's cool. I have tenure. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um. So yeah, that so that was my vending machine story. 
my vending machine story is I think I remember, but I may have fabricated this memory that some guy in the dorm that I lived in at one year in college, uh, maybe during like the summer, uh, shook the vending machine to try and get something out of it. Or maybe I don't know what exactly his motivation was because I wasn't there and this may never have actually happened. But for whatever <laughs> he was shaking it and it fell on him and injured or possibly killed him. And then his parents wanted to sue the school uh, and or maybe the vending machine company. And I think it may have come down to being this is why the vending machine was chained to the wall, even though it's like a 300-pound machine, uh, because that was the resolution of that guy injuring or killing himself by being an idiot with a vending machine. So that's a thing that's probably – I should just search Snopes because probably this is like an email forward that I forgot was an email forward. But, uh, but I really associate it with that dorm that I lived in, so I don't know. Yep. This has been the Vending Machine Podcast Hour. I, uh, <laughs> um, the movie. Okay, so 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 we get the he goes to the vending machine, and then we get our first sexy times where the pushy boss lady uh, echoes Literally, that previous. She, yeah, she pushes, she pushes him against, him against the, the, the vending the, machine. She turns him around and pushes. It's just like the scene from the tattoo That's, shop in the previous film. Total oh, visual yeah. echo, except for instead of homoeroticism, it's hetoeroticism. Uh, uh, and instead of saying, are you going to frisk me or fuck me? Boxes. She's actually, hey, I'm going to give you a blowjob right now. Um, and so she's she's implied to be giving him a, a, a blowjob. And then I think he has some more. He starts having a flashback again with a flashback in the film of sex with her this time. Uh, I guess this is the first glimmer that maybe there was something. And, and then he rebuffs her. Or something, and, and all the sex in this movie is fully clothed grinding. Yeah, and she's like, "Now say, get some fucking the... work done." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, you it's... know what? They maybe they did have sex, as far as this movie acknowledges sex to exist, because they were they were you know pretty close. All because all of the other yeah, nobody ever actually takes their clothes <laughs> off. In, in Never this, completely. To, to, I mean, there, there's plenty of sex. underwear time. Yeah, um, she later in the scene is totally dressed in like you know black stockings and garters and bra. Um, doing this sort of like, you know, vague dominatrix pastiche uh, with the character. She steps on his balls. Oh, yeah. There's there's some foot to crotch action. Yeah. Uh, there's there's so some very much, you will do what I say or I will. So like some out there, there's some crushing fetishist who was so excited about that. I feel like there's movie. a website we should be like submit the timestamp of that scene to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's already documented. I mean, uh, <laughs> but yeah, really, God, it all does. It really, really feels like softcore porn is what this script was originally like and they just like you know they edited in and out uh and and so he goes back to his desk and 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 yeah as as you mentioned earlier he sits down at his desk and then there's security camera footage of that amateur porn they were just shooting in the break room on his monitor and like immediately there so someone was really johnny on the spot about this and it's uh, uh, it's looping like a Vine video. Yeah, it's like little little little, little four seconds of oh yeah, and and it's this is playing on a screen and there's audio and what do you do when you're at work and suddenly there's there's porn looping on your do do you mute the speakers and then like kill the playback immediately or do you stand up slowly and look around <laughs> suspiciously to signal your guilt clearly to anyone who might have noticed this porn noise is coming from your computer? Yeah, you can guess which happened if you didn't see the film. Um, yeah. The, okay, so I this is plot a lot more when it was on Better Off Ted. The, the, the security camera thing. I want to say uh, that in the flashbacks. Here's here's my take. Here's my 
my previously mentioned grand defense of the conceptual uh, form of this film, all of this stuff with the VHS tapes and the security camera footage being played back and, and later the, the video that we'll have of, of him having sex with boss at his apartment after he rebuffs her and she leaves the video camera that she made him set up is still recording them. In fact, having sex on that chair anyway, and then Cenobites murder her and all this stuff. It's all of a piece of the idea that he's confronting subconsciously the, and his amnesia, you know, it all ties into him subconsciously confronting the duality of his awareness that there is this whole separate life he has lived that he has been he's currently trying to reject or repress uh, so it's all false memories. It's all about memories uh, being repressed and then being brought back to him unbidden. So it's all about amnesia as a defense against the truth of his life. And all of the all of the videotapes and the surveillance stuff all represents the fact that there is a world outside of him that is aware of what he has done, even if he himself cannot uh, admit and grasp that at the moment. So that that I think I think that's the big thematic thing that explains why there's all this annoying preponderance of videotapes and and flashbacks even though none of it's terribly satisfying yeah i just wish they would have organized it somehow or at least given it some sort of thing outside of just like here's camera here's footage here's here's more footage here's here's somebody talking about a camera they that that feels like a little bit like the um magic tricks thing in the previous movie where he's inexplicably and constantly doing magic tricks and they allude to it once just with more like more meta reasoning behind it, I guess. Yeah. But just like equally, like let's let's roll on this table of uh, character plot quirks, and oh, we have cameras everywhere. Okay. Yeah. Also, another thing I want to note is he's got a string of four CDs hanging in yes! his cubicle, which clearly is a reference to the best Cenobite ever. Um, yes, that's yeah. I I noticed that too, and I was just like, wow, that's. Sure is a bunch of CDs just just hanging yep. there. I wish it had been um, three CDs, so it would have been like you know CD from Hellraiser three. But yeah. uh, and then the cameras would be uh, the camera dude the, from Hellraiser three. Yeah. yeah, it's all coming together. Maybe maybe those cameras are supposed to be the camera Cenobite, but just conceptually spread out as a theme instead of a character. That could be yeah. Like he sort of becomes a substrate of the whole situation. Maybe that yeah. implies that he's in charge. He's like he's running. He's one of the people running this particular hell session or whatever. He has something to do other than bash people in the head with camera lens. Oh, and then there's the whole incredibly thing. sturdy camera lens. Yeah. <laughs> Duffy's Duffy's in his apartment a bit later, and he starts puking up water, and then pukes mm-hmm. up a giant eel. But it was all just a dream, of course. But then at the end of the film, we see that the like coroner actually retrieves a giant eel from his dead body after he drowned. So, oh, yeah. But, and the uh, coroner is the doctor yes. who was working on him in the hospital. Yes, oh my God, it and all comes together. The woman who's holding the bag that they deposit the eel into is the sexy acupuncturist, mm. I think. It might have been, yeah. At least it is in the script. Um, I feel like I didn't recognize as many faces. Time and was lit at some point. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I didn't <laughs> recognize as many faces in that final scene as I was expecting once it became clear that it was a you were there and you were there and you were there thing. Because I feel like I saw like two people, three people who were like there. And one of them is the detective who was actually the detective, you know? So it's like, uh, where's that going exactly? But, but yeah, he, he says that. And, and so he pukes up some water inexplicably. And then he says, what's happening to an empty room? Like someone's going to answer. And then he pukes up the eel. 
Uh, and then well, first he goes into convulsions because yeah. I guess that's what happens when you swallow an eel by accident. Is it's, maybe it was an electric eel? Oh, maybe that's a reference and, uh, to the future electroshock therapy scene that has been very briefly uh, in, in passing in the precinct near the end. <laughs> Here's um, did, do you remember how that did, did the eel crawl out of the window at the end by any chance? Because I don't remember it having done that. I think it just sort of flopped to the floor and died. Well, but, it, it, uh, I think it flopped the floor, and then he woke up because it was all just a dream. Okay, because in the he script, was it was supposed to actually like um, crawl its way like out the window. I'm just like, you guys did not have the money to pull that <laughs> off, did you? You no, wasted sir. it all on those opening credits. Yep. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. We get the videotape of Kersey opening LaMarchion's box. And, and like the videotape, I can't tell if this was an editing error or... Or another weird little minor, it was all just a dream, because he's he, he pulls out the VHS from the Chekhov's gun closet, and he's watching this videotape of their anniversary, and she's like, oh, you got a gift. Like, she's surprised that he got him a gift. Maybe this is a sign that their marriage was not, like, like he wasn't the kind of guy who, who did that. I shouldn't say this, though, because I'm terrible about getting gifts, uh, and I, I promise I'm not planning to murder and then go to hell with a box uh, as a result. Uh, but anyway, he's like, gets her a gift and it's a box, you know, it's a nicely wrapped box and, and, and she opens it up and then she rightly freaks out at him because like she's Kirsty Cotton and this is LaMarchand's box and what the fuck. So he, he's, she's freaking out at him on the videotape, but then like uh, there's a knock at the door and he goes to the answer to the door and the, the camera shows the videotape playing again and the box is once again still gift wrapped and she's making a different <laughs> comment about it's like, oh, you know, do you, did you wrap this yourself? You know, so I don't know if that was like shitty editing or if that was supposed to be a very minor little, oh, it's just a dream hallucination. Because there was also some weird staticky effects on the camera during the, oh my God, she's freaking out portion of the videotape. And yeah. Yeah. Well, these are questions nobody has ever asked for, and therefore the answers do not exist. Yes. Um, well, the sexy box and the, the, the sex and the rebuffing of oh, the sex. Oh, I just wanted to say that um, when you mentioned before that, you know, him and uh, Gwen were having sex on video, and then, you know, she, he, he kicks her out or she leaves or whatever, and he goes to look in the viewfinder, and there's still fucking going on in there, and then Cenobites come in there and kill them. That's literally what happens. That's not like a capsule. They're having sex. Cenobites walk into the door and kill her. And it's weird because, it like, because because he, he's he's seeing that the video camera's taping something's not there, and we get a shot of him moving his hand in front of the camera to establish that the camera is in fact filming. And then beyond his cam hand, there's still Gwen and him having sex in the chair that we can clearly see is actually an empty chair off camera. And so he spends actually a surprising, not surprising if it was actually happening, but for the film, it's kind of a longish scene of him being like, "What's going on? What's how is it doing that?" And uh, and and then he starts zooming in with the camera. And it's treated like some meaningful thing that's happening, but like like he's doing some problem solving. But it's totally unclear why he's actually doing this, other than it sets up nicely the very zoomed in, shaky footage of the Cenobites showing up and and uh, slapping a plastic bag over her head and 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 murdering her that way. And uh, there's a lot of that in this movie where there's just like a you know there's like a noise and then you know he turns his head and there's a dramatic zoom and like you know a dramatic music but nothing happens and i guess it's supposed to be disorienting but at least once something has to happen yeah but it but yeah there's and there, there's a lot of like dramatic zooms in this movie that have no like, either the timing is so off that I did not understand why it was there, or they were just fucking around with the camera. Yeah. And well, maybe the zooming um, in was, like, a metaphor for him searching for details within his memories. Like he was zooming in on his own fractured understanding of what had gone on in the last 
month or whatever. Yeah, that's it. That, that's uh, it, because he knows how to work a camera because he owns one. So that's why his personal hell has all of this random camera stuff to piss him off, because whoever's running the show doesn't know how to use a camera as well as he does. <laughs> He's actually an avid amateur uh, cinematographer. Um <laughs> Well, and the guy who, who directed this, Rick Boda, he's got a lot more cinematography credits yeah. than, uh, than directing he, credits. He did, so. he, this movie was directed, in fact, by Cable Ace Award winner, Rick Boda. Or Rick Boda? Is it Rick Boda? Rick Boda, I think, yeah. Rick Boda, yeah. He won a Cable Ace Award. He shot like 23 episodes of the 90s Tales from the Crypt uh, TV show. And that's too. what he won it for. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. He uh, won it for one of the episodes. Good job, Rick. That was, that, that oh, was, that was a good And he shot show. the movie, the Demon Knight movie, too, which I thought was good and then went back to and it turns out it isn't. <laughs> no, well, what do you do? But anyway, Gwen being murdered was all just a dream, of course. Uh, I believe this is where I, yeah, this is where I wrote, oh, fuck it, in my notes uh, at that point. Yeah, her character, they, they, never, they never close that character arc either. We, you never do find out. What, do, wait, do we find out what well, happens to Gwen? We find out that she's murdered. We don't, we don't see it on Gwen screen. Yeah, she, she apparently disappears, and then later the de- detective basically informs us and Duffy that she is dead. Uh, so I guess they found the body, but we never see it. Well, well oh, I guess Kirsty kills her. That's that's. Well, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Everybody, okay. Kirsty kills everybody. Apparently, but yeah, it's never really done explicitly, as far as I remember. But then we end up at uh, uh, Sage, the uh, acupuncture therapist lady's uh, place, where he's where we get a, a close shot of an ice pick being used to break up ice because you know ice pick, and it's like really. Like, again, this is a thing where, like, you know, they bring it back. They bring it back where she tries to kill him with an ice pick, but then it's all just a dream. But then apparently someone did kill her with an ice pick. Okay, so, like, we see the ice pick. We immediately know someone's going to killed with an ice pick. Someone got killed with an ice pick. Congratulations. You connected the dots. But at the same time, it's like, uh, it's not even super clear why she has the ice pick or the big ice. block of ice that she needs to break the ice off with an ice pick. Because, like, you know, we don't live in, like, <laughs> the 18th century or whatever. It's, or I guess that's maybe To be fair, century. they never really make it quite clear when this movie takes place. It could be kind of like an archer thing where they have computers, but they also have ice boxes. Maybe, maybe. Well, and I, at the end of the day, I suppose you can always just buy ice and an ice pick if you really want to do that, but it's just like, yeah. Actually, uh, I would have absolutely no idea. If you asked me right now to get you a giant block of ice, no idea. Well, I, I would I, have to... You'd have to figure where it would, out, but I think you could figure it out. I, I bet. I bet we could find out. You know, in five minutes of googling, where to each find a block of ice. But it has to be delivered with those giant metal ice tongs. Oh, absolutely. Otherwise, it's Otherwise it's not an actual. Matter. Yeah, we're not fucking around here. Sage, by the way, the <laughs> actress who plays her, you may remember from her role as ultrasound technician in Juno. So, I haven't seen Juno. Oh, it's, it's pretty good. Is it good? Yeah. I mean, do you like Ellen Page? What else has she been in? Uh, she was the architect in uh, Inception. She was uh, oh god, what else has she been? In? She's been in a bunch of stuff. Um, she's sort of young, sort of elfin. I, uh, until you mouth. brought it up, I didn't actually even remember that was a role in Inception. Yeah, so well, she, yeah, much, yeah, she, yeah, yeah. She was the one who did the this the world building. Essentially, was her job. Uh, oh yeah, okay. Um, yeah, maybe I'll watch Gina. She's in some upcoming video game with Willem Dafoe, which is weird because I like both of them, but I, that doesn't mean I want to play a video game. I hope it's Willem Dafoe, the video game where you are Willem Dafoe. I think, I think, I think you're Ellen Page is what you are, uh, is probably the primary character. Uh, this is, this is so unrelated to anything. <laughs> 
I just wanted to make a joke about the rolling <laughs> Juno, but uh, but yeah, well, we'll, well, I'll look into that. I'll have more details we can talk about in the future. Um, Willem Dafoe and Ellen Page in Hellraiser Ten. Uh, oh, and she's putting pins in his back, pins because of his headaches, pin headache. Um, we'll come I, back to I, that too. Yeah, they. I wish they could make that more obvious somehow. I hope. I hope they come back to that scene. Yeah, they they, they sort of do and they sort of don't. Like not in any meaningful way. Uh, blah, There's blah, blah. a door. I, can I just bring this up? There's a dartboard in their office break room. Oh, there <laughs> I, is. I don't think there that's is. OSHA approved. Well, you know, whatever. If uh, as long as nobody it's, gets hurt, it's not even like electronic darts or just you know one of those like you know things with like it's it's an actual like dartboard, like pointy dartboard. That's yeah. That that's how accidents happen. Let's see. Oh, and, and while he's while he's all getting uh, acupunctured up, then Pinhead comes out of a uh, acupuncture diagram on the wall <laughs> because it's got pins in it, and then he's Pinhead uh, in a sort of cheap-looking CGI transformation screen, and he pulls a pin out of his head, and there's no worm or brain bits like there was in Hellraiser 3 when he did that. He pulls it out. It's also and, very short. Yes, it's very short, and then it gets, which, which probably would need to be. I mean, I, I always sort of thought they would be, and then in Hellraiser 3 it was very long. I was surprised. Uh, but he pulls a pin out, and then it magically sort of grows to being very long, and and then he stabs Duffy, th- Duffy through the neck with it. Uh, but it was all just a dream, uh, and there's no discussion or anything. It's just Pinhead. We see him, but Duffy doesn't see him, and then Duffy's been stabbed by him, and that's Pinhead's sort of first appearance in the film. It's kind of actually a lame intro because it's like Duffy's having yeah. a bad dream about a guy he'd have no reason to know about, and a guy who classically loves to monologue, who just doesn't say anything and just sort of stabs him a little bit. It's uh, meh. yeah. They don't take advantage of Doug Bradley in this one. Yeah, he's he's really good at being pinhead if he you give him a chance, yeah. but they did not. And he got to be in this more than the last one, but there's he didn't get to do a yeah. whole lot more. So, um, I think um I think this takes place around the same time when um I don't remember if this is when uh, Brett confronts. Uh, Trevor about just like their plan or something, but at one point he says, "You're drinking." Oh no, you're drinking from the cash cow, <laughs> and I feel like that metaphor is missing a step in there. You just, you where just the get cow right is down milked. there on the <laughs> you get, yeah, you get right down there on the the udder, I guess. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it was it was unclear because I guess that's something that the film does sort of like you know peel away a layer on because earlier on you kind of get the impression that Brett's just saying, "Hey, you know, some of us have to work for a living," uh, oh, and the implication yeah, is it's yeah. because he's fucking the boss. Uh, and I think that was, was part it? of it, I, but but then I think later when we find out that Kirsty had this inheritance, it becomes clear that maybe what Brett is saying is, "Hey, if you get fired, uh, it's no skin off your back because you're going to be fucking rich, right?" Although what Brett's also sort of saying there is like, "Also, we agreed to kill your wife. Where's our money?" So it's you know, it's very muddled. It's weird because a callback of that caliber would imply that whoever is directing this movie assumes that people are either paying that much attention or are willing to watch it a second time, neither of which I think are, are realistic scenarios. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it may be giving it too much credit, but I don't know. It's like, I, I really believe that like every bad script uh, is not as bad as it feels like if you could just like really give it the benefit of the doubt. Because I feel like there's probably, there's, 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 Different kinds of cleverness in like basically every bad Hellraiser movie that came from someone who is not a terrible person sitting down and trying to make a story work. And I I, I don't write 
a whole lot and I find it challenging to do anything complicated or long form. So I can really appreciate that. It's not, it's non-trivial to write a, a genuinely good script. Uh, so I could, I could believe that that was maybe some sort of note that was intended and may have actually worked a little bit better in the script than it did on screen too after editing issues. But at the same time, yeah, it does seem a bit out of character with the film to expect that to be a level of expectation for someone to, I don't know, put together. It feels yeah. like something I could I could imagine like the director or the writer proudly noting in the uh, overly self-fawning director's commentary on the DVD movie. <laughs> and that's, that's my oh, big man. regret from watching this stuff on Netflix is I, I would love, I would love to listen to the director's commentary defenses of especially these later films. Uh, yeah, you know what? Just keep keep going as I find out how much this movie is used on Amazon on DVD. <laughs> Excellent. I, I, I would seriously consider paying not very much for a box set of this series of films. Uh, I'm not sure if one exists, though, because it's probably a terrible rights nightmare compared to even some other franchises. But, a uh, new copy on Blu-ray is $6. Wow. Down from seven ninety nine. Wow. Pretty sweet. I might check the bargain bin at the local uh, Goodwill, though. I bet I could shave a couple bucks off that still. Oh, so so Kirsty, he's watching another VHS. I don't even remember the context is because I stopped taking very detailed notes about chronology at this point. But uh, Kirsty, at one point on one of the videotapes says, "God forbid you let one event go unrecorded," which again I think underscoring the both the obsession with uh, documentation being betrayed by his his own uh, malfunctioning memory thing that I was trying to prop up uh, <laughs> in a sort of really really on the nose sort of way. But hey, you know what do you do? Also, he's looking out his apartment window, and there's a naked lady across the way who I, I checked this out, by the way. She has three credits. This is the first of them, all within about four years, and all as, uh, or maybe this was the last of the three, all as like basically nameless characters. So it's possible she was in exactly three films, all of which she was a naked lady across the street uh, in an apartment building or something. And, and, and she sees him looking at her and just like, you know, gets, she doesn't freak out. She gets kind of huffy and pulls the curtain, which is sheer. Yeah. So it's like, now I'm naked <laughs> behind a curtain that you can see me through. But you he, and he does squint. this, he does this little wave thing. And I can't say, tell if he was supposed to be being like, Oh, Hey, hi, how you doing? Or if he was like, Oh geez, I didn't mean to see you naked. But yeah, and then she huffy and she closed it. And we don't come back to that. But I thought it was, it was a little moment. And it also felt a lot like the scene from Inferno where he watches his partner get killed like through the window where there's something going on through the window. Oh, but yeah. this time it's funny. Yeah. Sort of. And, and then the sexy neighbor Tawny comes over and she comes on all strong and, and she, she's tearing up like her own slip. Uh, and she, she, yeah. she gets down to her underwear and she's like, oh, it's so hot in here. And she's tearing up her she's like, ah, tie me up. And, and I'm like, yeah, that, that won't end in a terrible murder somehow. But actually they just end up getting a sexy sex on it. This is the first time he's like balls out, just like, yeah, I'm going to do the sex thing after again, sort of trying to rebuff some. Uh, and, and, and so they start having sex on a really rickety table in close-up shots. But then we get a cross cut to a weird, uh, I think it must be the Cenobite stitch uh, is there instead of her. And, and it puts some metal clamp thing on his face and yeah. screws it down a few times. And then it just it shoves it all the mouth. way in. Yeah. And then shoves it like all the way in in a way that didn't. I don't even understand how that's supposed to work. What did you need to screw first that you then shoved four inches? Uh, but it was, of course, just a dream. But then he's got blood on his hands, and there's a bloody hand print on the wall, like he just blew himself. Um, and what sexy neighbor lady is in fact tied up and dead after all in his kitchen. And so she was tied up with ropes that we never saw earlier in the scene. So someone else, I guess, Kirsty. She's dead uh, of having um, blood wiped on her, I guess, because there's no wounds. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not really clear what actually killed her. Uh, but Poison fake blood yeah, for the role-playing. Yes, yes, that's how you do it. 
Uh, that'd be a that'd be a great uh, turn of events in a in a like detective show. It's like the blood's the blood's fake, but the poison's real. Um, and he goes and tries to confront Pinhead about all this going. He, the, the, the all problem solved card, and we get Pinhead in a mirror talking to him. Three Pinheads because three it's Pinheads a three in thing a mirror. There. Yes, and, and I think the voices, the, the audio solved. track is overlaid. Oh, like three times you think? Possibly. Like oh yeah, so I, so yeah, so he sees that in the mirror, and his, and Pinhead's all, all problem solved, and then the blood is gone, and so is the dead sexy neighbor. So it's like, you know, clearly it's a happy ending, and the movie's over. That's it, folks. Pinhead solved yep. it all. That uh, was that was the movie. But so so yeah, then he then then he goes to the neighbor's neighbor lady's apartment because she just lives down the hall, and uh-huh. he knocks on the door and. She, She's there. She's totally alive, but she's also being like standoffish. And he's like, he wants to come in. And she's like, eh. and and then the, somebody says, "Hey, what's going on?" And he's like, "Who's that?" And he's like, "I'm her boyfriend, man." Uh, no, if you if you want to know Tawny, you got to know me. Yeah, so, yeah. Really awkward three way invitation, I have to say. So, so what I want to say is like, there's the they're having sex, and then it was just a dream. Uh, they're having sex, and then the Cenobite shoves a thing in his mouth, but then it was just a dream. But then she's dead in his apartment, but then it's just a dream because Pinhead solves all problems. And then she's alive, but being sort of standoffish in her apartment. And I can't decide if she was supposed to be this is the real her, and Pinhead solved the problem by undoing them having had the sex and undoing them having any sort of sexual relationship because she's really giving off not a hey no not right now vibe so much as a uh do what's your fucking deal man sort of vibe it's not it's not yeah. feeling like you know she's saying hey this is not a good time for a sexual liaison so no, it's, as, it's it's entirely like why are you standing in my doorway yeah what what is it with the familiarity aren't you that guy who lives down the hall sort of vibe so did pinhead solve the problem by changing the nature of the world has he ever? And, and was he? Was he? Well, it's you know, as we know, it's not the real world, so it doesn't matter. But uh, this fucking film, man. <laughs> um, I I want to I want to take a reading of this that Pinhead solved the problem of Duffy's first real straightforward lapse into sexuality after all his attempts at sort of rebuffing you know by giving this sort of cosmic cold shower and saving Duffy's streak of not actually getting into it with any of these women. Uh, because that was really his first lapse, and then Pinhead makes it go away. So maybe Pinhead's actually sort of yeah. like encouraging an abstinence-only thing. Yeah, I guess his adultery was the reason for his and Kirsty's marriage falling apart. Yeah. Although it's weird, because it's also painted as the only reason. Well, I, I, I'm not sure if it was the reason so much as a symptom. Like, maybe their marriage was falling apart, and he was being <sighs> unfaithful, and that cemented for Kirsty when she figured it out, and so everything sort of spiraled. It, it wasn't super clear, but... Uh, I, I have to say, um, I, again, I was watching Fireproof last night, and it's about a marriage on the rocks. And the reason the marriage is on the rocks is twofold. One is that uh, Kirk Cameron doesn't do any housework. And the other one is that he has a severe pornography addiction. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, <laughs> I thought I got disconnected. Um that was that was your cue to laugh, Josh. Sorry, I was I was chewing uh, something. I, I didn't. I was, <laughs> I was away from the mic to not uh, make everything sound like asparagus for the listeners. Hopefully, but, uh, yeah. No, it's it's. I I I was linking that to something, and now and I'm spacing on it. I blame the movie for my lack of coherence in this podcast. <laughs> it's After Effects. <laughs> what I, what I'm doing is this is my impression of the movie where. 
we go off on random tangents but never follow up. Yes, yes. Um, oh, uh, so after that scene with Tony, um, I think the detective he he's he's pulled into the uh, he's pulled into the um, police station again, and he's constantly being pulled into the police station. Question doesn't give any answers and is immediately released. And I'm starting to think they're just doing it to make him late for something. <laughs> <laughs> But um, one of the detectives uh, it tells him that there's an interesting twist in the puzzle, which, as a metaphor, only makes sense if you're familiar with the specific puzzle that they're working on in here. Because generally, when you say puzzle, you, you, it, there's no components in it that twist. Yes. So that was... And that's, that's, pro- know, that's proximal as well to some random creepy desk cop who looks a little bit like Brian Posehn. Uh, who Duffy notices has like big black irises, like something creepy going uh-huh. on. Uh, and then he, in fast motion, folds some. He, he was reading through a report that, like, at first, I thought we were supposed to think Duffy thought there was something significant about the report, report but like we couldn't see it and there was, it didn't make any sense. I, apparently, it was just setting it up for what was going to happen, which was the black irises. And then the report turns into a piece of black paper that he then does hyperactive origami to fold into the shape of a cube. And then we cut to a flashback of Duffy buying the Le Marchand's box from uh, from the merchant, uh, the merchant, eh? Le Marchand, uh, and he's a merchant. Eh? He's actually yeah. credited as merchant in the in the credits too. So, uh, and, and there we get. The, Are you willing to pay the play the price? Says uh, the merchant, and Duffy tosses uh, down uh, a stack of cash, and the merchant pushes it back with grimy dark fingernails. So that's like a total uh-huh. callback to. Uh, was that Hellraiser 1, one. I think? The, mm-hmm. With yep. the, the creepy... Uncle Frank. Yeah. So uh, so there we go. Uh, the recurring theme of fingernails. Yes. Dirty fingernails. Pushing money around and such. And he talks to that Allison lady, uh, who's played by Dave Foley, and, and she... Oh, wait, no. Um, after he buys the box from the merchant, a bunch of ravens just fly out of oh, nowhere yeah. and at him. And that never comes back either. It's just like, hey, it would be really freaky if ravens flew at you. Ha, ah, yeah, okay. Let's forget about that, that now the, and move on. That, that is the hell equivalent of a handshake. He was supposed <laughs> to have his own ravens fly out, and then they meet and screech and then disperse into the air. That's how you, that's how you shake hands. The, the, the original scene was slightly longer in which the merchant said, dude, don't leave me, don't leave me hanging, you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he, he ends up talking to the Allison, the blonde lady, Who's I guess a police therapist maybe, or she's a resident. She's a resident of the hospital. That's right. Which which um, he determines to mean that she lives there. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, I think a resident does spend a fair amount of time at the hospital, so maybe. Uh, yeah, but the way the, the way the way it was it was the conversation where he calls him up and he wants to speak with her because she's been the only like sympathetic person to him this whole time, and and they're just like, oh, you know, Allison, you know, isn't here right now. She's like, what do you mean she isn't there? She's a resident. No, no, I I don't think he said Allison isn't here. I think he said there's no Allison here. Like that was the first uh, time someone was saying there's no such person, and uh, and he's like, what what are you talking about? She's a resident. You know, so he wasn't saying she lives there. He was saying that, no, you, of course you've heard of her. Of course someone's heard of her. She's a resident at your hospital. So I think, I th- I think he just, uh, unless, unless I got it wrong. Which case, comedy with this movie. Sorry, sorry, yeah. <laughs> Although you may have heard it right and I heard it wrong. I'm just standing by my, my interpretation. So, But anyway, we'll she's, know, she has a talk with him. Back. He sits down and talks with her to do a little bit of like brief therapy. Uh, and, and, and she says, you know, in a sort of affable buck up sort of way, maybe you're not the angel you thought you were. 
which is actually a pretty fucking weird thing to say to someone out of the blue. And I think it's also kind of weird that Duffy didn't think it was weird. and was just sort of like, huh, yeah, I guess. Because like, I, I, uh, I think with, with all the other stuff, the regular weird stuff just sort of levels out as baseline. I guess, yeah. Like at a certain point, like you're just like, oh no, there's just those are just the spiders that live in my pants. That's no big deal. That's 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 nothing. Uh, oh, and when the de- detective goes to Duffy's work, and like Duffy goes to work, and the, def- the detective sitting in his chair, and Duffy's like, "Make yourself at home," and he's like, "I don't mind if I do." And then Duffy goes to sit down. I swear to God, for half a second, I thought Duffy was going to sit in his lap. Like, the way he started to move, I really thought he was going to just spin around and plop down, and that would have been the best scene ever. But no. And, that that that, and, that yeah. movie actually starts off the sequel to the movie where uh, the detective in the previous one confronts the guy in the tattoo shop who says, "Are you going to frisk me or fuck me?" It's that that's the start of the continuation of that movie. <laughs> uh, also directed in that by office. Oh. oh, what was that? Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's there, there's a scene also in the office uh, that starts with a tight shot of a water cooler and, and the glubbing of air coming up oh, as yeah. I think Brett pours himself some and it's like again maybe Christy drowning trying to make some sort of water Last thing there half. and then and then they have that you mentioned the dartboard they have Brett and Duffy have this tense conversation and Brett like punctuates it by throwing a bullseye by just sort of chucking a dart sideways and it like nails a bullseye and that's like clearing that scene out. I thought it was pretty dumb basically. <laughs> I just wanted to mention that it was dumb. Uh... Oh, um, <coughs> in the original script, uh, going back during that vending machine scene, instead of a hand, um, instead of a hand coming out and just smacking it, what's supposed to happen is that he's supposed to see Pinhead's reflection spin around and then there's Pinhead and Pinhead rips his face off. Oh, that would have been, that would have been uh, worse actually, I guess. Yeah. So I'm. <laughs> I I feel like the entire script just reminds me of. Have you seen um, a mighty wind? Yes, yes. Where they where you know they're finally like producing the show and it's a PBS show and like the the guy who's the one of the producers who's funding it he's just like you know it'd be really cool one of those like big sweeping shots across the crowd where you know you see the crowd and then it zooms in real tight on the uh, on the stage and the the camera guy's like yeah that that would be cool and he's like can we can we do that he's like no no we don't we we don't have that camera <laughs> I feel like most of the script is sort of like that it's like all right well this is a good idea but we can't do that because there's no money. Money. We spent it all on Dean Winters, who's uh, who was rolling. Wait, th- th- this was before Thirty Rock. This was when he was. Uh, I looked up the, the only credit I remember. This was like right after his one season on SVU. Oh, okay. So maybe that's what they 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 they, they got a big name actor from Law and Order, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what they spent their estimated three million dollars on. Maybe, yeah. I have a feeling. Always, I, I can. I never understand this with, with 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 the budgets. What is it that they're spending this money on? Where is like I'm going to say seventy five percent of the money going? Well, I think a lot of it is just the actual uh, daily, probably worksite costs and the crew. Um, you know, no no one on the crew is getting paid a ton of money individually, but you've got a bunch of people involved uh, because of you know union regs and and who you have to have on hand to shoot something. So there's a lot of just sort of daily cost of having everybody there. <laughs> Um, before you get around to the idea of paying anyone a large salary for uh, for doing the film. Um, oh, and I guess there's SAG minimums and stuff. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of basic accrual like that. So when you just scope out the 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 size and the length of the project, you're going to have a certain minimum money that you're going to have to put into it before you even start talking about you know paying 
principles for stuff. And uh, I think one of the makeup folks on this actually was talking about being happy to come back to work on it, but essentially having to do it for uh, essentially for free. Like they just didn't take a paycheck because there was no money left for getting paid after everybody else who needed you know to be paid for just working their job got it. But uh, I meant to look up who that was. They didn't sound bitter about it. They just said like, "Hey, yeah, we did it, and it was nice to it was nice to be able to get back to do it." And we were looking at the money. We said, "Hey, uh, are we getting paid for this?" And we realized, "No, we're just we're not going to get paid for this." But uh, other people got paid, and that's okay. Uh, so someone who was apparently doing okay. <clears throat> so this was a labor of love for at least one person. At um, least, at least one. Yeah. Say, and and a labor of hate for the the actress who plays <laughs> Kirsty. Indeed. Uh, so he ends up back at Sage's, and and I think she's the one who says this to him. Uh, if there's any pain in your head, it's in your head, which I thought was a nice little uh, <laughs> line. But also Sage, like totally, when we're converting from. I'm your acupuncture therapist to uh, I am now going to get sexy with you as we, I maybe have done before is the implication of this film. Although there's no real indication of it with her up until this point. Uh, she totally like she rubs his lips. So we got some lip She's rubbing. She's a woman in this movie. She has to have, want to have sex. Well, with yeah, him. That's, yeah. That's, well, that's granted, but, but if she got murdered, it's probably because she had been having sex with him before is the implication from Kirsty's motivation. So it's weird that there's no hint of that before this scene. Uh, of any sort of like continuity of sexuality. You know, you know what I just realized? What, what if Kirsty did promise that, and you know, she promised to get them five souls. Oh, and but she, she could never wrong? actually. Well, no, no, it's not that, not that, but it's that she couldn't actually pin down the women he was cheating on her with. So she just went out and killed random women. That could be, or maybe, maybe, maybe she legitimately had him as fucking around with both Tawny and the boss, and then Sage. She just had her suspicions about. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, a lot of acupuncture. Yeah, that's real. And <laughs> and so she ends up murdering Sage because she's basically against, uh, you know, holistic medicine. Um, that would be a hell of an episode of uh, <laughs> something. <laughs> Wouldn't it, though? I, I, I can see, like, an entire, uh, what is it, you know, Hannibal subplot, I guess, of murders of, like, uh, alternative uh, healing places. Watch Hannibal on NBC. Wonderful show. <laughs> I really got to watch it at some point. So uh, good. It needs to show up on Netflix is what needs to happen because that's how I watch anything. You can watch – you can stream um, episodes from free from NBC's website. Is, and, it, uh, is it good or is it shitty? Because last time I checked, it was shitty, but it's been a while because it was What, the shitty. website? Or? Yeah, yeah, the, like, like the streaming experience from their website or whatever. Oh, I, I have I, – I, I, I definitely watched it on television as it first aired. <laughs> that's how I watch this show on television as they air. Well, maybe I'll see if I can find it. We'll see. Uh because <laughs> yes, I should watch it sometime, and then we can. You talk want to about borrow anything. my VHS copy? I maybe, taped it. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe you should mail that to me. Um, do you keep it in the closet next to the gun? No guns in the other closet oh, with okay. the other guns. Okay, good. Yeah, uh, it's always good to have a gun closet. I, you know, just keep it simple. Like that's the closet for guns. That's you know the other stuff closet. Um, oh, I want to talk about this. Okay, so Sage gets sexy with him, but she gets sexy with him after she has been talking to him. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, she's been talking to him and uh, and putting needles this time in his stomach. So he's laying on his back and she's doing acupuncture along his abdomen. Uh, and and then she rubs his lips a bit and then they start getting sexy times. You know, she, she gets up and sits on top of him and sort of lays down on him. But he, he really conspicuously had like a dozen acupuncture needles in his abdomen 
and now she's just laying down on him, and there's no reference to this at all. Not like <laughs> not like a freaky, uh, oh, ouch, that hurts, but mm, sexy, or a freaky like, oh, my God, this is turning into a hellacious nightmare thing where you're piercing me. They're just nothing. It's like they, I really feel like it's just a terrible continuity error. Yeah. Or, or at best, incredibly bad cinematography blocking where maybe the idea was that she was – it was a daring thing because she was like sort of hovering over him and not quite pressing a bunch of two-inch needles into his flesh. But they, it's just not there. It's nothing. Nothing happens also, there. Yeah, it, that, that was weird. There's also a weird mismatch in her clothing where she's she's an acupuncture and she's dressed, you know, sort of like a sexy hippie, I guess. I, I can't really describe it. You know, she's got she's sort of wearing like very loose clothing, but at the same time it's like revealing kind of, and it's supposed to be, she's definitely got like this hippie vibe. And then when she's grinding him, she's wearing like this fancy red, like silk complicated, like bra and panty set that just do not jive with the other clothing that she was wearing. Yeah. Well, I, and I, I'm, yeah. And, and I think they spent a lot of money on that bra and panty set because they, they shoot this in a way to sort of highlight her. Because all of the other sex scenes, they don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really wonder if there was like some sort of editing calamity that created the, <laughs> the thing we ended up seeing in this scene, because it really feels like a mess. But anyway, she, she, there, the sexy time, sexy time, she grabs the ice pick, tries to stab him, and you know it was all just a dream. And uh, he's just on the bus again, uh, dreaming. No, no, he wakes up... Uh... No, he wakes up in the hospital on a stretcher. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and he, they, we find and then, out that he passed out on the bus that he'd been on. Yeah, the yeah. They um, the, the the EMT is like, "Sir, do you know where you are?" He's like, a "Hospital? Am I in three quarters of a hospital room?" Um, he's like, "I'm in the hospital." Uh, and they're just like, "Do you know how you got here?" He's just like, "I was having sex with a woman, and she was on top of me." And they're like, "No, nothing as exciting as that. You <laughs> passed out on the bus, buddy." <laughs> it's like, oh, poyo. <laughs> And then we find out that Allison was just all a dream. Uh, and then we find out shortly thereafter that Allison's real after all. Uh, the, the, the hospital shtick in this is tired enough in the franchise at this point, the creepy hospital thing, that I just really had a hard time caring about the individual notes of it. But uh, there is a... The scene where he's talking to the, uh, the janitor. I liked that. Actually, uh, Grumpy Janitor is my favorite character in the film. Yeah, this was like it, it was it was the cowboy scene from the previous movie in a microcosm where there's something considerably more interesting going on with that character in that room than is going on in the movie, but they never get to it. Yep. Well, I think it was a lot more understated in this film. The cowboy scene is brilliant. This was just merely a nice little diversion. Because, yeah, what, what he, he's like, well, let me talk to Allison. It's like, who's Allison? It's like, blah. And then he goes, and I, uh, it took me a second to figure this out. He was going to the office that he'd previously gone into to talk to her. So he's going to try and find her again. And he opens that up. And that's where there's a grumpy janitor mopping and smoking a cigarette. And the guy's like, oh, geez, you caught me. Fine. Just let me finish my cigarette. I just got one more puff, you know. And, and, and Duffy's like, oh, my God, she's, what, what, where's your office? And he steps back out. in the hospital. Yeah. And he, step, <laughs> he steps back out in the hallway, and there's Allison after all. So I guess she's not really just a dream. And, and she and there's Allison, and she does that, like, horror movie, like, out of nowhere thing where it's, it's clearly implied that she just appeared in such a manner that, you know, she wasn't there, and then she was. She didn't, like, walk there or anything. She didn't show up. She was just there. And, um, yeah, and then they have the conversation, and the janitor's like, hey, buddy, who are you talking to? And, and then, then she's gone. Like, yeah, yep. But how did uh, what my my objection is? I feel like Duffy was standing, sort of framed in the doorway, looking and talking to Allison, who would not be visible, not being there. 
on the other side of the doorway, and this janitor, he his whole character is not given a fuck. He was mostly annoyed that anybody came in. So why is he now striking up a conversation speculatively with this guy he doesn't know who he just wanted to go away about whether or not there's someone he can't see and can't hear around the corner where he wouldn't be able to see her in the first place. Maybe she's talking quietly. So I was like, why is he, why is he even picking this fight with this dude? Also, Allison says, you can't undo your past. And I was really hoping that uh, they would go softcore again. And then she'd like <laughs> unbutton a button on her blouse and be like, but you can undo your pants. Um, <laughs> but no, we didn't get that lucky. No. At one point when he's on the bus, there's a dude with a fucked up eye, but it's not like Cenobite fucked up. It's just sort of <laughs> gross and fucked up. And like I kept, again, I kept waiting for something to happen with the bus, but like the most we got was like an old lady who looked like a creepy old lady because she's under a terrible green filter and she's knitting. And then this guy with a fucked up eye. Like, like if the cameraman Cenobite from Hellraiser 3, uh, that could be what happens when you get a terrible beach caricature from a boardwalk artist. <laughs> If you're this guy with his shitty eye, he's like, oh, hey, you got a fucked up eye? How about a camera for an eye, eh? Yeah, you know, but it's like, it's just, this is some poor guy whose eyes fucked up. Jesus Christ, you know, give the guy a break. <sighs> and we also get, we also get a pinhead reflected in a puddle later in the film, calling back the reflection in a mirror and apparently the scripted reflection in the, the vending machine that didn't actually happen. So maybe that was a trio of scenes. Um, and pinhead does a monologue. It's like the game is, oh, Duffy says, the game is over. Do you hear me? To Pinhead in the Puddle. Uh, so Duffy is apparently of the opinion that it's not not just a game. Like he's, you know, he, he's on board with it is a game, but it must end versus the previous films. Do you think this is a game? Uh, it seems diverging opinions among per- characters in Hellraiser films about whether or not it is a game. It depends on how you define game. It does. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of meaning. Some it's just a toy. This, I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I just tried to, don't, okay, anyway. You're on your own there, buddy. We'll just, uh, yeah. <laughs> I just tried to allude to an, like, offhand concept about board games, and it did not go anywhere. Yeah. Oh, and so when they're talking in the puddle, uh, uh, Duffy's like, you killed her. Why'd you kill her? They think I, they made it, you killed her and made him think I didn't. And Pinnett says, no, oh, yes. No, you tried to pin the murder on oh, me. Oh, right, 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 as as noted. And then Pinnett says, the killer is amongst us, yes. Uh, and then and then Duffy just sees his own reflection instead of Pinhead's. And oh my God, what does that mean? It's like, at this point in the film, I feel like anybody who hasn't figured out that probably Duffy tried to or did kill his wife doesn't deserve being helped along by the film because it's just like ah pinhead really you're so good at being like you know menacing and monologuing and whatnot that's just it feels like you're spoon feeding the dude a little bit not as bad as his brief appearance in in the previous film but still it's yeah. kind of like uh you're really kind of you you can do better man you're you're a high society cenobite come on um yeah and then uh I think it's then that the chains come out. No, 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 not no, yet. No, no. Then, like, then, then he goes back outside because we're in the creepy warehouse again, and Brett uh, shows up with a gun and goes all expositioning and then shoots himself, um, as, as previously discussed. Uh, and then we get a shot of the big faceless mystery dude, the, the big dude with that mask. That there's a reason for that. There's a reason that there's a weird shadow 
person following him around, and it's in the script, and it's a character that doesn't appear in the movie, has no bearing on the movie, and it's clearly shoehorned into the script and then shoehorned back out. <laughs> and that's and this is like what's left of that is a a unexplained creepy guy in white following uh, Trevor around. I mean, in black following Trevor around, always in the shadows, never actually emerging, and never doing anything yeah dark figure uncredited according to imdb yeah as i really i couldn't make sense of what the hell the deal was supposed to be there because yeah there's no no resolution to that at all that's really just weird and problematic it doesn't make sense uh and and the thing is i think we i think duffy had seen that guy or glanced that guy a little bit earlier and then the brett thing happened brett blows his head off and then we we get a shot of big faceless mystery dude again, but we don't get a shot of like Duffy seeing that guy at all. But then Duffy stumbles off shouting, no, you're not real. Get out of my head. And I don't know if he was supposed to be reacting to faceless dude or if that's supposed to be his reaction to Brett. Like he's just now figuring out these hallucinating things because this seemed like the least hallucinating hallucination he would have had yet. So for that to be the thing at that point that he was like, no, this for sure, I must be hallucinating. Uh, doesn't really make any sense, but they, they don't really sell the reaction to the faceless dude in the way the scene's edited either. So it's like, I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't yep. know. And does he end up at the, does I think, he end up at the police station again? Uh, you know what happens is he ends up at Sage's and then she's right. killed with the ice pick and someone's coming. And so he, this is, this is, <sighs> Jesus, the unlike other things, this film, this, this part was badly done. Uh, there's there's someone at the door and he's he's in the room with Sage and there's an ice pick stuck into her head and obviously this is a bad scene for a number of reasons but uh, I mean it's a it's it's a bad situation it's also a bad scene but that's not the sense I meant it in uh, someone's at the door and the person who comes to the door they start turning the doorknob very slowly just like you do in a horror movie I guess uh, but then they find out that the door is locked and so they flail at the door for like 15 seconds like you know shaking it by the handle and then they unlock it so if they had the key why do they spend 15 <laughs> fucking seconds doing that and then after they've done that they turn the doorknob very slowly all over again and it's like who does this and it turns out the answer is the the black detective detective uh Jekyll. And like four cops oh, yeah, with like their guns cops. drawn. Yeah, so they're gonna like they're gonna take like a minute to open this door in the dumbest way possible when they already expect there to be trouble. No, the dumbest way possible is if one of them would have whipped out a shotgun, tried to shoot the doorknob <laughs> off, and then but there wasn't any ammo in the gun. That would never happen though. That sounds crazy. Uh, and in the meantime, Duffy is like I guess afraid of faceless dude. Uh, I, I guess is maybe the motivation here because he's trying to pull the ice pick out of her head and he manages to and then he's standing there holding a bloody ice pick next to the, the dead lady when the cops come in. And so let's all go on down to the station, I guess, is the implication. Because like they don't even like, they don't start screaming at him or anything. The detective is just looking like, ah, oh, come on, Duffy, I'm on your side here. But you can't, you can't be standing around holding an ice pick like that because that's, you know, <laughs> I, I, I believe you. Yeah, pick. yeah. So it's like, so we, yeah, we just transition to the cop shop and he's being interviewed by the detective who's still being nice for some reason. Uh, and at one point here, Duffy glances over and there's a, some cops nearby who are just beating, like he can hear someone like, oh, and and, and there's like three cops standing around. One of them is just beating someone clearly with a nightstick and like blood splatters on the cubicle windows from that. Uh, but then it turns out that was all just a daydream. Uh, and, uh, and then there's the, uh, 
The electrocuty guy. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a little bit later. First, the good cop leaves and the bad cop comes in. Oh, that's and right. And as the bad cop sits down, there's this brief, way, way, way too loud bit of Foley effects. As he's sitting down, there's like the Foley effects for man, man's ass settles into chair as he scooches <laughs> and seats himself. And it's just like the, the sound on this film was not great. I had to turn it up pretty loud just to you know, consistently hear stuff, which seems to be a theme with these films. But that was so loud. Something <laughs> got away from someone in mixing because it was just it was profoundly noisy. It was weird. Uh, and then yeah and then and then the cops for some reason suddenly burst in to that office and grab Duffy and pull him away from bad cop and then good cop comes through that door and it's like oh yeah the, this duality thing and we see boombox punks with the cop jacket and we see the electroshock thing where a couple of cops are just bizarrely giving someone electroshock which you know it, it feels like you know this is supposed to be presaging you're having this as a delusion while you're actually in a mental hospital or something but no he's just you know as we know just had his brain blown out and for some reason electroshock is he was always thing. afraid of police brutality i guess yeah <laughs> and, that was and also he saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest as a kid and that freaked him out i don't ah why is that even there what was ah yep and it felt a lot like a retread of the the police station scene from the previous movie to the extent that i'm like is this an illusion or did they just reuse it just reuse the entire scene and possibly the set yeah it's yeah you kind of have to i feel like there's like no production overlap between this and the previous one though is the interesting thing yeah like 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 there's there's connections between this and the next two certainly with the the, the writers and the directors and mm-hmm. uh but there's like as far as i can tell four to five nothing five to six nothing five was just a it was an island unto itself as hellraiser productions which who could blame anybody involved in any of them for that but still it's weird. Yep. So, so the nice detective takes him down in the basement, and there's crazy people in chains. Oh, well, technically, we only see one. Well, we see two. And the first well, one we the, see uh, the guy in a straight jacket, and he's peeing himself. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was like, is he sopping wet, or is he just pissing himself like a champ right himself. then? Because that was a yeah. lot of liquid, and it was sort of coming down in a big stream, like 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 he would almost have to have his dick out because like if you're just peeing your straight jacket. You know, you'd get a puddle, but it'd be much slower. I mean, that was, it was a cascade. It was a waterfall of apparent piss coming from this guy. And he's in a straitjacket and surrounded by, like, you know, medieval-looking metal pointy stuff, too. So it was, very, it was very like Girard Institute. Let's go down to the basement where people are being confined in terrible ways, uh, like from Hellraiser 2. And, Maybe he's the bathroom attendant. And he's urinating so you could feel comfortable oh, urinating he's there, like, too. He's, he's like, yo, bro, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, I like that. That's he's he's just a sympathetic figure in the film. He's trying to help Duffy out, and then we have the 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 the, the various doors through this dark tunnely cop basement and the two faced cop literally thing and the laughing and laughing and laughing and Duffy flees into this implausible whatever the fuck is going on under this police station. He sees another dude chained up somewhere with his his face peeled off. So we do get a skinned face oh, in the movie. Yeah. Just uh, just a brief throwaway. Who knows who that guy was? Thing. Um. And, uh, you know, I, have we talked about this before? Have I mentioned that as, as these movies become less centrally Hellraiser-y, uh, they feel to me like they get blatantly more and more sort of Silent Hillish, Like a lot of, yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. Creepy yeah, hospitals and dungeons and, and strange restraints and so on. Yeah, Which, it, it, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's a franchise that has also sort of gone downhill. So, you know, it's, I guess there's the... That's, 
that's one of those things. Silent Hill and Metal Gear Solid are two video game series that I want to know what's going on and the storyline, the continuity, but I will never sit down and play those games ever. See, the, the 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 first three are good, and like number two in particular, if you had to play one ever, would be a good one to play because I really feel like it hits the notes correctly. It does a great job of being sort of spooky and mysterious and hard to understand, and it has that weird incoherent lack of continuity, but in a way that feels very intentional and very planned. Uh, unlike uh, some films we are discussing uh, today, <laughs> but uh, it's it's actually really great. It is spooky, and if you if you don't really like being involved in playing a spooky video game, yeah, maybe it's something to avoid. But you could spectate, get someone else to play it, uh, maybe, and then you could be. It's like you're watching a horror film, and you can shout at it together. Uh-huh. I did that actually with uh, some friends. We played through Silent Hill 3 a while back. Uh, well, I played through it, and they hung out. And, you know, it was like five or six hours to play through. So we did it in a couple sessions, and uh, oh, it was that, a good time. that's it? I mean, well, is it, it five it, or six hours if you I, know what you're I, doing? I had played it before, so I made it a little bit better. Per- I would say oh, it's okay. probably maybe, if you're really taking your time and doing it from scratch, maybe more like, you know, 10, 12, 15, depending on how thorough you are. Right. And how often you pause to just, you know, shake in fear. But uh, but you could you can do a playthrough like you could do it. You can really do a playthrough in like two hours. Um, hmm. Actually, it's, the game's got various special endings depending on how you did, and one of the determiners is how long you take. And so, if you want to get like the best ending, which in a Silent Hill game is usually a pretty ambiguous thing, but still the least terrible ending. Uh, usually, you have to run the game in something like two to two and a half hours. So it's very doable if you're just going point to point to point to point uh, and know your way around. But uh, but yeah, Silent Hill. That's a it's it's a whole. Thing. We have such games to play. You and is the name it? of the podcast. Yes, yes, indeed. And there, there, there are there's a, there's some movies too. So you know, we'll talk about that sometime. But uh, anyway, he ends up in a morgue uh, through this through this whole weird, complex, implausible tunnel. He ends up at the morgue in the police station, which they had said earlier that they'd found uh, Kirsty's body or the body that was implied to be Kirsty's. And he was like, is it Kirsty's? And I was like, well, uh. so he ends up at the morgue and there's a body under a sheet and he goes up to it. And the morgue is full of horrible, gross bits of flesh and meat and skin yeah. and maggots. And this is it like, looks like they've just been eviscerating people down there for some reason. And not, not, and not just not, not like autopsy or anything, but there's just like shit strewn about. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a fucking mess down there and it's all very, very, very dark side of the world in Silent Hill sort of moment. Uh, but then he goes up to this, in the middle is this uh, reasonably well-lit body under a sheet. And he goes to reach to pull it back. Uh, and then there's like an earthquake. And there's jars shattering and shit's all shaking. And some of the wall collapses, really revealing our classic uh, lath and plaster sort of thing with <laughs> the blue light shining through like in the first film and... Uh, at moments in the later films. Uh, so total callback visually there. And then there's Pinhead. And we get a bunch of monologuing that wasn't really very interesting. Uh, no. It's not Pinhead's best work. Uh, well, I mean, he didn't have a whole lot to work with. So he's he's going to just like give Duffy a hard time, which blah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, something about you know paying the price, like calling back to earlier when he's talking about the price is much greater for the box than that stack of cash and check out my fingernails and... <laughs> And Duffy's like, let me see my wife. And he's like, in time! Um, which may have been a lie, because maybe, uh, maybe he's planning ahead that he'll eventually get Kirsty, and maybe they'll, they'll spend the rest of our life together in hell. But uh, yeah, he's shelling in time. And, and then finally, we get chains with hooks come flying out of the floor, and that's when he gets chained. there in the morgue in front of the body. Right. 
Uh, so, so grabbing Duffy by the hands and then many times by the face and then Pinhead does some more monologuing. And that's where we get the flashback and the cut to pieces scene where Pinhead reveals that he was only using uh, the Duffster to, to get at Kirsty. Uh, and he actually thinks Duffy's pretty boring, even though he sort of started by saying you were an interesting case, but then he's basically like, actually you were pretty fucking boring, but yeah. uh, Kirsty's pretty interesting. And uh, so yeah, this whole uh, three quarters, four fifths of the film was about you, but you're really just a side character. And we really want to talk about this callback character in the <laughs> film who hasn't really been in the film very much. So uh, I mean, and that's got to suck for Duffy. I mean, it sucked for, I think the viewer as well, but you know, but we don't even get to explore Duffy being like, wait, but this wasn't about me. He's just more like writhing in agony and fear because he's got a bunch of hooks in him. Um, yeah, Pinhead's shirt. Yeah, I mean, I guess that explains why Pinhead took so little time out for Duff for uh, for <laughs> for him. It's just like, look, you're. It's like you're one of the pieces I got going here. I can't spend a lot of time with you. Let me just stab you in the neck and I'm out. Peace. Yeah, yeah. Who's just like he's doing? We we see some of the side things like this. Him stabbing Duffy in the neck earlier was actually that's essentially the someone going to the bathroom on a TV show moment that you never see because like it's, it's not what it's about you know it's not a TV show about someone having to use the restroom uh, you know the Hellraiser movies aren't about Pinhead needing to do like incidental torture of people to set them up psychologically for their ultimate eternal destruction and damnation that's just that's something he does when he's not doing the important stuff. I'm I just going to assume that the previous one and the rest of them are all take place at the exact same time, and oh. Pinhead's just wandering from case to case to case. And then, you know, once in a while, he he stops back home in the in, in the Hell Universe, and he just takes a shower and just sits down on the bed and rubs his head. He's like, God damn it. Let me tell you something, because that goes to something I wanted to mention. Uh, someone, uh, someone who was listening, so someone listens, uh, I think it was, uh, it may have been Horror from Metafilter, uh, texted and had apparently listened to the discussion about the question of whether Pinhead can tell what people's dark secrets are because of being like psychic or because of research uh, and wrote to say, you know, uh, uh, I, I like the idea that, uh, oh, here's the tweet. Personally, I favor research over psychic. Pinhead has a team compiling portfolios on everyone he's likely to encounter, which I really do like as an idea. It's great, especially if you take sort of the Mordor notion that everybody who ends up encountering the box was sort of faded to, because then that narrows it down a little bit. Oh, my God. You know what I really want to see now? A um, Aaron Sorkin, West Wing, walk and talk with Pinhead and the Cenobites. This is what I said back. Yeah. It needs to be like it's a police procedural Except instead of like being a police procedural, it's a collections agency procedural, uh, you know, the Leviathan collections agency. And yes, <laughs> Pinhead is the is the, the the head of this. He's the grizzled old school guy running the show. And then he's got a team of people. And yeah, they're doing all this. They're doing research. They've got B plots. Uh, they're trying to figure out stuff. They're trying to, to track down this case. The two movers. Yeah, like the, the movers would definitely need to have and the recurring janitor. It's the movers and the janitor. Yes. They team up. Yes. Uh, and, and, and yeah, and, and you know, you'd have like, you'd have some perspective character who was like new to the, the company. And in the first, uh, episode you know we'd we'd get introduced through their eyes uh depending on what sort of uh centibite they are maybe they wouldn't have eyes but you know uh and 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 so we'd see 
pinhead directing and working at Case, and this new person would have some experience in stuff but hadn't really worked here before. It clashes a little bit with pinhead, doesn't agree with his methods, doesn't understand why he's doing some of the things he's doing. But by the end of the show, you know, he'll have come around to saying, oh, I, I, I see it. And, and there will be a grizzled second-in-command uh, maybe it'll be the chatter who almost never talks, but in the episodes he gets like one line, uh, like a Kevin Smith cameo in his own films, uh, where he'll just turn out to be like some hard talking. Yeah, yeah. When when he stops chattering his teeth for a second, and he'll tell this new guy, he's like, you know, you you, you wanted to know earlier uh, why we put up with his shit. Well, I'll tell you why. This is why, because he gets the job done. He knows what he's doing. He's a pro. You can learn a lot from him, kid. And then go back to chattering and and. And and so yeah, it would be like every episode would be like a new weird case and maybe a new Cenobite coming in and, and yeah, it would be amazing. I would I would watch the holy shit out of the show if it if it if it were to exist. Maybe we should get Clive on this. Maybe. Get Clive Palma. and Aaron together. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Sorkin and Barker. A match Just leave a bag of cocaine in a bar and invite both of them there. <laughs> And like you know, I the, the first two. Th- <laughs> Parker has a cocaine problem. I don't think he does. <laughs> no, but it's it's where ideas come from in 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 the entertainment business. Cocaine is the fuel on which uh, great things run. I guess. Anyway, what well, there was there was a film. I guess we're talking a film, right? Yeah, so, that, so that we're at the ending of apparently. Um, oh yeah, and then so the final reveal is what actually happened in the car all the way at the beginning where. Uh, you, you get the same shot as the beginning, but this time Kirstie's really pissed off at him, um, and she, you know, confronts him about all of the, uh, you know, the women that he's been sleeping with, and um, and then, you know, he just really offhandedly, uh, Trevor just really offhandedly says, "Man, I had a deal," in like in a completely non sequitur fashion. Then she's like, "You had a deal, but I made a better one," and guess what? They accepted. And then she blows his brains out, and the car goes over, and then. Um, she escapes. But I want to talk and about that line, actually, the exchange you just quoted, because it doesn't work in the film right. <laughs> They're sitting there, and he says, he's saying to himself, I can't believe this shit is happening, man. I had a fucking deal. And then she says, no, you had a deal. And the thing is, he, if he had said, I, I, I can't believe this is happening, I have a deal, then she could say, no, you had a deal, because there'd be a difference to emphasize. <laughs> but instead, he said had, and she corrects him through emphasis to had, which, <laughs> what in the fuck? And I'd like, and again, you mentioned the alternate scene. If you watch the alternate scene, there's another take where he does say have. And that would have worked fine, but that ended up not being what ended up the film. So, oh God, it was like, I can't even get to the end of this film that's clearly finally ending without them just fucking something stupid, but aggravating up to slow me down and take me out of it even more and i also like the i like the alternate scene better i I can't at this point i can't even really identify the major difference between the two except for maybe just like a couple more lines of exposition but in the movie um she pulls the gun on him as as he's looking away and she sort of just like you know takes it out of hiding and you know points it at him then he turns around then there's the gun in the alternate scene, she pulls the gun out in full view and just sort of points it directly at his face, which I think was just would have been so much better for what they were doing with her character at the end. Where yeah. at the end she wasn't like she wasn't reticent about doing this; she will shoot a motherfucker in the face. Yeah, she was stone cold, which was yeah. If you watch the the, the YouTube clip I found of that scene in the car, you can sort of tell what was in the uh, original 
uh, movie cut versus the footage that they patched it together from because they seem to have used the movie footage where it was in the movie and then cut in the stuff that wasn't there. And so there's a little bit of different treatment, the, the post-production filter. There's, there's not as much shitty blue filter on the stuff that wasn't in the uh, – <laughs> so you can, you can sort of pick it apart that way uh, without having to compare directly to the, the film itself. Uh, but yeah. And then Pinhead, like, that, that would go back to Duffy – uh, all well, hooked up. Well, well, yeah. Well, okay, so we we see his head blown off, or or you know, not really blown off, but you know, blown through by a gun and the splatter on the window, and the car goes in. Uh, and then and then we go back to Duffy, all hooked up down in the morgue, and Pinhead says, "Welcome to the worst nightmare of all, reality." And 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 we see the car going off the bridge, and she swims to safety really easily, and she's actually kind of smiling when she comes out of the water. I feel like, and and it was him dead eyed and drowned in the car the whole time, except it was all just a dream, and he's still in the creepy morgue. But now all the hooks are gone, and he's not bloody and being tortured and whatever. And it's like, oh my god! And then there's uh, the reveal of what's under the sheet. Yeah, which to no one's surprise turns out not to be Kirsty, but his own dead drowned body. Oh my god! And then he notes to himself out loud again, saying things out loud that why would you ever do it he says i'm the fifth soul he notices himself because like either he or the audience is supposed not to have put this together at this point (laughs) even after a very straightforward exposition jump in which he's clearly that's the whole thing and yeah and then yeah we see the people who are in the film and the coroner is actually you know the old mustache guy and allison is just some sympathetic the thing with allison and she's like She's like talking to him and, and the whole thing is, and the coroner's like, Hey, you're freaking me out, Alice. And she's like, well, how would you like it if you were dead? Wouldn't you want someone to talk to you like a normal human being? And it's like, well, no, no, what she says is what if there's no afterlife? Wouldn't you want somebody to talk to you like a normal human being for the last time? Which implies some sort of really weird cosmology on her. Because do we stay in there for a little bit and then vanish after we die? Because you're still talking to what is very obviously a corpse. Yeah, it's not the, a dying person. If there's no afterlife, we're clearly at this point after life. So yeah, he should be gone. It's not like, you know, you're giving him last rites or holding his hand as he perishes. So yeah, it, 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 it's a pretty fuzzy bit of uh, uh, metaphysics on her part for sure. And then he says, you're creeping me out, and I'm the coroner. <laughs> I bet he does that at parties. Like That's, that's his winning line. Every party he goes, he waits for somebody to do something that could be interpreted as moderately creepy. And he's like, hey, buddy, you're creeping out, and I'm a coroner. Uh, and then everybody laughs. No, they don't. Everybody's too busy paying attention to the proctologist. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I feel like that guy's pretty uh, stuck up. There was um right when they get into the hospital, like all the way at the beginning of the movie where he gets in the hospital, the guy's just like the doctor who turns out to be the coroner, he's just like, you know, I'm gonna give you, you know, some uh pain pills, but you know, don't get addicted to them, otherwise you'll be coming here for a fix. And I'm just thinking, you know, what if at that point Trevor was like, Well, I didn't think of that, but man, that's a good idea. Hey, <laughs> wait, I can just I fake an illness buy, and you'll yeah, that's awesome. I don't have to buy drugs on the street anymore. Exactly. Thanks, Doc. Um <laughs> And then, um, oh, the detective is there at the end, and yes. then uh, he recovers the box. Yeah, and, and he, do, he uh, does his Columbo thing again with like, oh, one more thing yeah. to Kirsty, but he just wants to give it back to her. He's like, hey, we found this. Do you? She's like, yeah, it was an anniversary. He's like, well, here, I was going to put in evidence, but, uh, but why don't you take it home? 
And it's like, okay. And she's sort of continuing the thread of awful police work from the previous movie. Yeah. It's like, yeah. hey, we found this gun. Um, we know the guy was shot, but it's also might belong to you. And, you know, you know how they say possession is nine tenths of the law. So here you go. Yep. And then there's just a slow pan out as the cops mill around the crime scene and we roll credits. And it's a, as a setup, this was intended, I think, in at least one of the writer's minds. Maybe this was Tim Day again. I think I read a bunch of interview with him uh, that this was very much a setup for a next film that became a final confrontation between Kirsty and Pinhead. And so in that sense, it sort of makes sense that she comes out alive, she comes out with a box and that there's this, you know, potential follow-up. But uh, it wasn't really in this film and that clearly didn't end up happening. So I want to see, I want to see a continuation where Kirsty, now the person who has murdered five people uh, is just like on the road with the box. Well, and here's the thing. I think maybe as I think about it, maybe this is the end of the film continuity from which Clive Barker's new stuff goes on. Cause she's going on sort of like a vengeful thing after the fact with sort of a dark history. Uh, I really need to go back and read the comics now. Cause maybe she actually sort of becomes contrite over making that terrible deal with pinhead. And then the comics follow her and a group of sort of like-minded anti-puzzle box, anti-Leviathan vigilantes going around destroying puzzle boxes and trying to right some of these wrongs. And then there's the one box and they have to go on an epic journey to uh, Mount Doom. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, no, actually, it it seems like the comics actually embrace the idea that there's a variety of devices instead of just a bunch of boxes. But uh, so that's almost a little bit like it picks up on what could have been a series of police procedurals of, you know, Lamartian puzzle hunters or something. But you know, it's really, I've been watching, um, Grimm. Have you watched Grimm? No, no, I, I want to get around to it because it's shot in Portland. So, Hey, but, uh, the, oh, the, yeah, that's right. So the, the, the basic conceit of the show is that there's monsters and they shape change into people sort of, it's complicated. So half of it is monster hunting and half of it is a procedural. And the procedural part of it is literally the worst police work I have ever seen on television. <laughs> Just literally, they never get warrants for anything. Everyone lets them everywhere and everybody, you know, in one episode, um, you know, a, uh, what do you call it? A landlord lets, lets them into the room of a dead guy who they don't tell them is dead. They never tell him that he's dead. And they're just like, oh, well, he's dead. So I guess I'll let you in. It's like, no, it's just some good. It's like, hey, can we see your tenant's apartment? We're cops. Yeah, sure. What's that? Why not? <laughs> they go to a doctor's office. They're like, hey, did you see this kid? And she, and the doctor's like, yeah, you know, I gave him a prescription for, for, you know, some condition he had. Um, it was, she's, you know, <laughs> revealing medical information. It, it's just the worst police work. So, I don't know what channel that's on, but watch Grimm, but ignore the police work. Duly noted. Uh, stuff from the credits. Uh, I did not manage to sit through the credits on this one. I, 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 was... I, I think I, I just needed, I needed to wind down after such a thrill ride, you know? Um, okay, well, my credit notes, just on the funny name front, the props buyer was named Ocean Muzak. Uh, which I, I honestly I don't know if that's a weird company name or an actual person's name or what's going on there, but it's Ocean Muzak is a props buyer. M U Z A K. Yep, yep, like the brand name Ocean, like the ocean. Uh, one of the credits that I didn't know what to make of it was Honey Wagon Driver. A guy named Jim Farrar is the Honey Wagon Driver. Uh, would you like to speculate on the Honey Wagon Driver role? Uh, I don't give a damn about honey wagons. They're they're, they're mobile I that, shitters. I got that meme wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. 
You should do- um, not give a shit. Yes. That's right. Yes, the Honey Wagon is uh, apparently a wide variety of mobile shitter units that are handy for movie sets because, you know, you you got to use the bathroom and you're on a set. Um, so apparently Jim Farrar drove it around. And it's not spelled quite the same, but, you know, Jay Farrar uh, from Uncle Tupelo. Uh, he's a musician. Uh, just pretend you do because I'm going to make this bad joke anyway. <laughs> let's assume that Jim Farrar is actually Jay Farrar's brother and that he has his own band uh, with another that he he's in with another uh, guy who drives a shitter and their band is called uncle Pupolo. <laughs> hey, um, also, but there's also some guy named Scott Rivette who's the driver. His credit is driver of a two holer, which I could find almost no information about on the internet, but I'm pretty Let sure it's supposed to holer. <laughs> oh you, no. Yeah. <laughs> God help you. Well, it, it, I, as far as I can tell, it's just another, it's like an outhouse on wheels. Like it's another variation of a honey wagon, because there's that type of outhouse called a two-holer. It's just a larger outhouse. So, so they had a honey wagon a, and a two-holer. Why didn't uh, they just call it a two-hole honey? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. As far as I can tell, two-holer is only referred to in the credits to this film in any credits <laughs> for any movie either. So someone was being like thorough and creative, I guess, writing it up. Uh, the, the key grip for the film was a guy named Randy Swanson, which whatever. Uh, but a character hapless soul was played by someone named Scott Swanson. So this hmm. might be a coincidence or it could be like a nepotism. Like, sure, Scott, I can get you part in the movie. How's your, how's your haplessness? Can you do <laughs> hapless? We've got a, I don't even know who the hapless soul was either. Like maybe it was the guy chained up to piss himself. Peeing himself. Yeah. yeah. Seems pretty hapless. That's, that's the, that's, that is the apex of haplessness in the movie. Yeah. But if he gets a credit and then, and then the guy who had his face skinned off didn't get a credit, I'm pretty sure that the reason they didn't get credits for some people is that they wouldn't call them back with their full name. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> they like, just had a casting call. They're like, you know what? We're shooting the movie right now in the back. Just go in there, do the thing. We'll give you 50 bucks. And then they're just like, shit, what was that guy's name? You want to give him a call? And the guy just refuses to pick up the phone because <laughs> he does not want to work with these people anymore. <laughs> the song credits uh, are all for uh, three pieces of music by a guy named Steve Edwards. I think this is the guitar stuff in particular that we heard. Can I just say how much I hate guitar-based themes for things? It's not great. This theme specifically, the the opening notes, it jumps from like the root to the fifth and and then to uh, like, it moves to another, it it reminded me actually a bit of one of the main themes from Labyrinth. But this one something like that. Uh, so it made me think of Labyrinth for like two seconds every time and then turned out not to be Labyrinth at all. Um, and yeah, the guitar thing doesn't really work, especially the Hellraiser films. I feel like the orchestral stuff works a lot better for these films. Yeah. Or if you're going to go that way, at least go full on KMFDM. But the names of the three pieces in the film he's credited with are Backwards Kyrie, Spaced Out Office, and my favorite, Rage Against Loud Guitars. Which sounds like it would be the title of like if Tom Morello became a born again Christian and recorded an acoustic folk hymn album, he would like call it "Rage Against Loud Guitars" to show he's changed his ways or something. Have you um, ever heard the joke of the guy um, having a piano audition at a club? No. Okay. <laughs> well, so uh, there's a club. It's a nightclub, old school nightclub, and they they need a new pianist, so they get this guy. You know, he's auditioning. Oh, God. Okay, yes, I do know this one. And he plays this, you know, beautiful, 
beautiful song and they're just like my god you know what was that he's like oh it's an original composition they're like really you compose too he's like yeah it's you know i do that too like what was it called he's like that one's called fuck your ass with a chainsaw (laughs) and they're like oh uh all right and he's like do you know anything else he's just like yeah how about this it plays just another just completely different but like equally beautiful like um amazing track and they're just like wow that 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 was great what what do you what do you call that one and it's like oh that one that we call that one your mother sucks cocks in hell and they're like oh okay um let's just think about this for a second and he's just like listen while you're deliberating do you mind if i go use the bathroom and they're like no 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 it's fine so he goes to use the bathroom and um he's really nervous so after he, he forgets to zip up after you know he washes his hands and he comes back out and they're like, you know what? Listen, um, we decided to give you the job as long as you never mention these song titles to anybody. But um, do you know that your pants are unzipped and your cock's hanging out? And he's like, no, but if you hum a few bars, I could probably play it. Yes. I have, I have this terrible, uh, I, I love that joke. And I have this terrible desire to like tell it back to you slightly differently just because like, it's not exactly how I would tell it. And that seems really dumb. So I'm not going to, but, uh, but yes, Yes, I, I I love that joke. Well, let's let's hear your version because I've always hated the delivery on that. Oh, okay. Well, my my version is it, it starts pretty much the same. Like a guy's playing uh, uh, playing play, playing guitars his first night, or, or playing piano. It's his first night playing piano at this this uh, nice upscale bar, and he's doing a great job. And the owners, uh, you know, basically you know checking him out, making sure it's going good, and. Uh, and so he's playing, and the owner's like, "Hey, yeah, uh, so uh, that was that was really great. That piece you just played." He's like, "Who's that by?" He's like, "Oh, I wrote it myself." He's like, "Oh yeah, really? Wow. Uh, what, what, what do you call it?" He's like, "Oh, well, it's called uh, you know, fuck you in the face with a with a cornholer." And the guy's like, "What? Really? Hmm. Okay." Uh, and the guy's like, "But you, you want me to keep playing?" He's like, "Oh yeah, no, 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 keep keep, keep playing." And you know, he plays another song. It's beautiful again. He's like, "You know, owner's like, is 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 that an original too?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a what's." I'm almost afraid to ask, but uh, oh, that one's that that one's called uh, "Vagina Forehead uh, in Hell," and uh, the best part of this joke is just trying to make up bad song titles on the fly, I guess. Uh, and the guy's like, "Ah, okay, I'll tell you what. You know, you're doing great. Uh, this is uh, I, I, I'm giving you the gig because uh, you know, you're an excellent pianist. But you gotta, yeah, you, you can't you can't tell anybody the titles of these songs. These are terrible song titles. You're gonna offend my customers. So just." We got a deal, and the guy's like, uh, "Yeah, no, I, 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 job's a job. I'll take it." And so he plays for a while, and eventually he goes and and uh, takes a break. He says, "Hey, everybody, I'll I'll be back in ten minutes." And he goes, takes a break, goes to the can, uh, and yeah, he's he he comes back out, and a customer uh, notes that you know his flies down, and he says, "Hey, uh, hey, buddy, uh, do you know do you know your dick's hanging out of your pants?" And the guy's like, uh, no, but uh, if you if you hum a couple of bars, I can. So I, I'm feeling less confident of of, of my my opinion <laughs> of my version of it now that I'm being very self reflective after yours. Where really we just told the same joke and told it pretty much the same way. I guess I, I'm I'm quibbling over the plotting of how his internal state is when he goes to the bathroom, and uh, <sighs> that's a that's a really that's a really minor niggling detail. I think the point is it's a great joke, and everyone should tell this at dinner, especially if there's children present. Um, so that's your homework assignment, listeners. <laughs> Definitely. Also, get- tune into our next podcast, which is where we decide ahead of time what jokes we both already know, and then we tell them, <laughs> and then you vote whoever tells the joke better. I feel like th- th- that joke, I feel like to some extent that joke is like a, a slightly more traditionally structured aristocrats. 
Like, like I like the yeah. idea of the aristocrats, but the problem with the aristocrats is there's, there's no punchline. Yeah, there's no punchline. There's nothing underlying it. You know, it's only a joke you can tell because people know that it's that joke that isn't a very good joke, but an excuse to say dirty things. So this one, this one, you get a proper joke, but you also get to throw out a few horrible things, and you could milk that for a while if you wanted to. So this is, I, I would, I would love to watch a, a documentary of the aristocrats that was instead this joke. You know, as a sequel, I think that would work well because you could get an excellent collection of uh, uh, fake, terrible song titles. And it's the, the instead of just famous celebrities, it's just high school kids struggling to remember it. Yep. <laughs> People really drunk, really stoned. Talk to some professional pianists, see if how they feel about it. Uh, oh, after the credits, let's shoehorn in some Cenobites and shoot it at Hellraiser <laughs> Ten. <laughs> Dick Seeker, um, <laughs> Dick Zipper. I don't know. Uh, Speaking of music, at at the end of the credits, after they go by and we get the final shot of the Dimension logo, there's creepy music box music. So yeah. you get the, the, the is the thing a music box after all thing as just a closing bookend to the opening imagery of the, the box in the credit sequence. I wish titles. they'd have it like the Bond movie. There's like Pinhead will return in, in Hellraiser farts. <laughs> yep. That would be pretty great. Most of the people in this film have been in films or television shows that are better than this film, I want to say, which is not saying much, but compared to the first couple films where most of the people in those films had never been in anything and never would be again or, or, or only in stuff like no the, one ever heard of. Like a, like a perfect confluence of people needing to make a payment on yeah, something. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people in Canada in 2002 needed a gig and uh, this one was paying. Because like a bunch of the actors were also on Stephen King's Dead Zone, that TV show, which was <laughs> running around the same time, uh, and also in something called Just Cause, which I've never heard of, but was also, I think, a Canadian series. Uh, also, several people did work, voice work, I guess, on RoboCop Alpha Commando, which was a cartoon series about RoboCop that I never knew about. Oh, that's right. They used to make these, they used to have cartoons of all sorts of, like, very hard R action movies. Um Rambo, there was a Rambo cartoon, there was a RoboCop cartoon, there was a Toxic Avenger cartoon. It's weird yeah, how it was... these things happen, yeah. Whereas if they were making them right now, it would be a natural fit for like, uh, you know, Adult Swimmer Cartoon Network, but at the time, it just... You know, these were children's cartoons. Yeah, yeah, it seems so weird. There were also several people who worked on X-Files, uh, or Fringe, or Supernatural. Um, at least two people in this film were also involved in Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2, which I mentioned not just because it's the sequel to Baby Geniuses, but because this falls into an entry of you were looking for sequels that take the form of a new name, colon, the original name ah, 2, yeah. Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2. There you go. Add it to the list. Nice. That's, um, uh, yeah. That goes on the list. Yes. We'll, 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 we'll make something of that someday yet. Also, a guy named Mike J. Reagan, Reagan or Regan, I can't tell, is credited as the makeup effects shop supervisor for this film. Um, he, he's also uncredited as the, he was the guy playing Dark Figure. <laughs> uh, but he was also uncredited for the role of the torso chatterer in the previous film. Ah. This is the guy who plays the uh, character who doesn't get enough screen time to really justify their presence as a non-speaking role in the horror escapes of Hellraiser movies when they need someone to do that. And then don't want but to he can walk in his hands. Yes. So, you know, there you go. So I, which is impressive because like Torso Chatter looked like a pretty skinny guy. 
dark figure looked like a pretty hefty guy. So unless he put on a lot of weight in the ensuing years, I guess. But uh, but he also did the makeup for the next two Hellraiser films, as well as the later Prophecy films. And he worked on Wishmaster, which we mentioned previously, uh, was written by former Hellraiser's 2, 3, and 4 scribe, Peter Atkins, longtime friend of Clive Barker. Was um, was uh, Wishmaster, was that... Was that Wes Craven's Wishmaster? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was executively produced by Wes Craven, so they got his name on it. And can I say, you know, I, I, I kind of can't stand it when people like just go on about baseball trivia because it's like the dumbest, boringest thing. Who cares who was playing in 1976 and you know how many hits they got? And yet here I am. So basically, I'm a I'm a gigantic hypocrite. Is is what I want to acknowledge here. So. So, well, yeah. you heard it here on yep. <laughs> hour two, minute 41 of this podcast. Finally. The both of you still listening. <laughs> finally, I realized the truth that I, I, I am just having amnesia because I can't confront the dark truth that I, uh, I like uh, baseball trivia if baseball is a movie. Yep. Well, gosh, I feel like I talked a lot there. I feel, I feel spent, emptied. Yeah, I, th- I think I think we've covered this movie uh, more than anybody ever has in the history of this movie. Yep. At this point, I think this is the longest conversation <laughs> anybody has had about this movie <laughs> since the initial pitch. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm starting to think like if we had done this in a real time like commentary track thing, it would have really helped with concision because these these podcasts would all be like a half an hour to an hour shorter each. <laughs> if we had been constrained to the time that the film itself takes. But this gives us much more room to breathe. You know, I feel like this is, yeah. this is a format that uh, pays off well. So uh, we're great. We're great is what it is. That's, um, do you have any closing like thoughts? Make up a Cenobite? <laughs> oh, um, yes. Uh, my Cenobite is called... Uh, I don't have a clever name for this, but they didn't really get clever with the names for these recent ones either. So I'm going to say Receipt. His name is Receipt. And what he was, was he was a clerk at a store. And uh, then something terrible happened, and he ended up being cenobited up. And so what he does is he spits out a receipt from his mouth. And he's got like a cash register eyeball or something, like maybe a, a, a numpad and his mouth is just a slit out of which receipt paper comes. And it's like a receipt that's an accounting of people's sins. So it, he's like spitting out sort of your receipt of everything you've done wrong that puts you in this situation where he's even there. And it spits out so much that he can tie you up and tear you to pieces with it. That's a good one. That is a good one. Uh, what do I have? I have Vendo, who is enormous. And the entire front body of his front body is clear. And inside you see like little vending machine spirals and behind each of them is an organ. Oh. And then he shoots organs out of his slot exactly how a vending machine doesn't. And they <laughs> kill people. I like this. I like this a lot. I think uh, I, I want to see, see a sketch of that in action. That'd be, that'd be quite the thing. Well, I hope you can draw. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll just see. All right. Uh, do you have any? Do you have any any closing thoughts? I, here I, I don't. We got the self promotion out of the way in the beginning. Okay, so yeah. um, go go to our web pages and things and click on the things that make us happy. 
Uh, yes. And next time it'll be uh, what's next? Is it Deader next? I think it's or? Deader. I think okay. it's Hellraiser Deader. Um, the sequel to Hellraiser Dead? No. Nope. No. Hellraiser Dead and Deader. That's a pitch we oh, need to man. chew on sometime. Jim Carrey and who the hell? Who was the other guy in Dumb and Dumber? It was Jeff Daniels. Okay, yeah. Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels as Cenobites. Yes. Slapstick <laughs> Cenobites. <laughs> That's the movie I'm going to watch. Uh, fuck Detter. I'm, I'm, yep. I'm, I'm just going to... Is there a Photoshop for movies? Because I'm just going to put corpse paint on uh, Jim Carrey and uh, the other guy in that movie and watch it like that. The one thing they did never hell raise was their IQs. Oh, fucking last thing. The trailer to this movie has like halfway through, you know, it starts off like a regular horror movie trailer. And then like halfway through, there's like slightly wacky music and a quick montage of all those women trying to fuck him. And I think they were trying to market it as some sort of like sex romp. (laughs) I will have to... I will have yeah. to track that down. Okay. Uh, All right. Okay. Well, good time. Good time. Good night, everybody. We'll see you in a couple weeks. 